How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 200. That's showbiz, That's all, folks. That's it. This is it. We're done. We're actually not doing the episode this week. 200 episodes was enough. That was... The double this, century. This will be the shortest episode of the series at two minutes long. Yes, it probably it probably felt eerie because the, the music was slightly different, Zeke. Yes, yeah. Based off the film of the week from the film of the week. That is true. Based based on based on <laughs> that's te- technically true. Yeah, that's technically the composer of the film passed away just hours after after the film finished. That that was a spare fact for everyone. That was a free one. Really? Everyone can have that. Do you have any more for me, Jake? I do. I have another trivia. From 1976's Taxi Driver. I do. So between the time of signing his contract and shooting the film, De Niro won the Oscar for The Godfather Part 2, of course. Mm-hmm. Fantastic performance. We still haven't done it. We've done the first one, but mm-hmm. not. That was actually episode 100. There you go. It all ties together, Zeke. Very nice. He plays the man... Betrayed by another actor, of course, but there's also the thumbnail of episode 100, so it's it's all nice and tight. Now, that contract was $35,000, which is actually quite a lot of money adjusted for inflation, but nevertheless still a very small amount for an actor of his caliber mm-hmm. who just won an Oscar. Now, the uh, Paramount, or sorry, not Paramount, Columbia, were actually looking for excuses to pull the funding of this film because they, I mean, this is just the disgusting nature of artistry versus, you know, commas. Yeah. And business. Capitalism. In, in, exactly, in the filmmaking, which we all love capitalism. But yeah. <laughs> no, but they were, they were trying to find reasons to pull and were kind of hoping that De Niro would raise the price or his own price after winning the Oscar. But nevertheless, he honoured the original deal, mm. which goes to show even masters like Scorsese, of course, is our director of the week. Even he had many, many, many uh, fights in his journey to becoming the film legend he is today. It's fascinating. Well, speaking mm. of Martin Scorsese, obviously yes. this week's Director's Corner, but believe it or not, one of the first people considered to direct Taxi Driver was not Martin Scorsese. Oh. was indeed in earlier drafts, or, you know, as, as the main screenplay is written by Paul Schrader, sure. yep. um, who's a, you know, a director in his own right, mm. um, a very talented director, but Brian De Palma was actually considered to direct this film. But the producers were dragged into a private screening of, to tie in a De Niro, Scorsese Uh, Mean Streets. Mean Streets, 1973. Very good. Um, And then that's what gave the green light for Scorsese to direct this. So, like you said, wasn't... Took, it was off the back of Mean Streets that he got the gig. That's fascinating because I was watching... I got the Blu-ray over here, which I'll talk about later as well. This very particular, there's so many different versions of Blu-rays of this film, mm. and I really struggled to pick this one um, for for a particular reason. I'll get into later, but um, the one of the bonus features on it was Scorsese sort of talking about that, from, but from his perspective. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting for me to hear that Brian De Palma was actually going to direct it himself because Scorsese sort of insinuated that he just kind of gave him the script line. Hey, this is a really great script. You should direct it, and they almost kind of had to convince people to allow him to direct it since Mean Streets was the closest thing he had mm. to a, a resume at this point other than, um, you know, I think it's Who's That Knocking at My Door is the first film he did and he yeah. did another one between that and Mean Streets. 
And so, it's, and it's interesting because yeah. it's, you know, obviously being a director's corner and we're going to talk a bit about Scorsese as a director and yep. what became the Scorsese style over the course of three, four real decades of sort of directorial dominance in the same company as, as your Spielbergs. And, as opposed to fake decades? Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> but how different this film? I mean, not I seven mean, or eight years later mm. do we experience Scarface, the De Palma sort of like the epitome of De Palma direction right. and how drastically different his own take on a, on a mafia, on a, that sort of mafia type, which I mean, mm. compliment, you know, could easily reflect that with Goodfellas, but yes, how different these two directors were mm. um, and how they could have taken a Schrader script, which I didn't know Paul Schrader until reading up on the film was the, the head writer. And right. boy, does it make a lot of sense <laughs> in terms of pacing Right, and we're talking, you know, we're talking even off there how, how minor things change, and how minor, and how slow the plot really moves mm. until its last twenty minutes. Yeah, um, well, even that that bonus feature thing of Scorsese, I was watching. He makes a joke about, you know, if if people have the patience for this film, I was like, wow, he's mocking his own pacing, which is quite interesting. Mm. But well, it's not mocking, but it's acknowledging you're right that it's this film is a bit of a slow burn in a lot of ways. Yeah. Which is, yeah, interesting. I mean, there's a lot to say about it. This is not the first time either of us have seen this film. But, no. But this rewatch, most re- rewatch, most recent rewatch, my goodness, why am I, why am I doing a podcast? I can barely speak. Um, was very enlightening for me in that way, in, in terms yeah. of the pacing and how the film approaches that. But, Zeke, I don't even have to ask you. The film's on the poster behind you. Yes. The Avengers films you must watch. I say that because you, you literally saw me check last week. Yeah, but it's, it's also Taxi Driver. It's also Taxi Driver. <laughs> I don't even know why I checked in the first place. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, and I do think it it would belong on my own list. Oh, my God, absolutely. Because there's, there's so many reasons we can talk about in the second half of the show. While I know it's the director's corner, but why this particular single piece of Scorsese yep. film literature stands on its own. Because it's not just him his direction at its at its peak it's you could argue it's among some of the career performances of multiple actors in it mm. and then on top of that it's it's stuff like i just mentioned the fact that it's a, it's a paul schrader script yeah. screenplay which is which may not have seemed valuable at the time but retrospectively it's like wow that's crazy right. to think about <laughs> bernardo Herman's final score as well which i alluded right. to earlier but no, I think I mean this is definitely a career high for a lot of people. I mean Michael Chapman's cinematography, the look mm-hmm. and feel and aesthetic of this film is just incredible. So I think you're right; it belongs on the list for all of those reasons. And even I really don't. I, it's just so easy to get <laughs> caught up in Taxi Driver already. But the one thing I'll say before we move on very quickly is, um, compared to Scorsese's other films, where it looks you know like you just said the mafia stories because he's obviously known for many many mafia mm. stories um his stories of christianity he's done many many very religious based films and this film taxi driver that we're covering as like the main representative film of his career at least in this conversation doesn't really fit into any of those categories like this is there's there's this is definitely a crime film mm-hmm. but in terms of organized crime and mafia this is very subdued in that sense in terms of the a christian background pfft, there is none. <laughs> That's not present at all in this film. It's it's very distinct in his career, and yet I think well well deserved to be one of the most spoken about. Mm. I mean, the film's been seen. It's got over a million logs on Letterboxd. I think less than a hundred films have that many logs, ever. So, so there's a lot. 
There's a, there's a lot there. That must be very recent that it just hit a million viewers. Yeah, it's it's one million and thirty four thousand. It must have literally been the last week or two that it reached that milestone. Mm. But nevertheless, a very very popular film. But we could go on for all day about tax. Let's let's get into the weeds. Before I ask you, Zeke, what you've been watching last week, I want to give a bit of a shout out because the last few weeks you've been watching a lot of DC animated stuff and Batman. I have, which is just horrible, unfortunate timing for Kevin Conroy to have passed away. Oh no! In the past week, that I could that I think he was sixty six years old. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't old. No, and shocking out of nowhere. It felt like yeah. And it was definitely one of those things, obviously, yeah, talking about older, and I admit, I didn't, I think the only one, I went back and looked at, through the ones I had seen, right? and the only one that had a Conroy voice acting in it was it the uh, Flash, joke? I think Flash, oh yeah, so yeah. two, I had a okay. Killing Joke and, and Flashpoint Paradox, I think actually had him in it too, but brief, so um, I went obviously, looked after the news, I, I personally hmm. didn't have that, that childhood of Affinity sure. for him, but understood the resonance of it. Mm. Um, and he was the voice in all the Arkham games, yes, wasn't he? So, yeah. which is definitely what I'm most familiar with his work. I mean, I've seen some of these Batman movies we just talked about, but I mean the games. And and what was so what was so weird for me because I really I was shocked and like really I wouldn't say use the word devastated, but it really hit me. Yeah, more so than when Robbie Coltrane passed away only a few weeks ago. Yeah, I would have. I a million times I would have told you Hagrid meant more, more to me in my childhood than Batman, but yet the Kevin Conroy they really that really upset me. Yeah. So shout out to the legend. Yes, which, I'd like to give that fan. I think it's Phantasm was the one that I'm trying to remember what it, Phantasm. I have to. I'll get this up. It's not Herogasm you're referring to. No. From the boys. Certainly not. <laughs> it's a slightly different. Because uh, I did, I did go like check. Oh, which ones? Which of the animated ones he's been in? And was Mask he not? of the Phantasm, right, is the one that has got a four out of five on yeah, the wow. box. It's a ninety-two right one. And yeah, it's a. Uh, was he not in Under the Red Hood? Was that not him as well? Because uh, that's the one that actually came with my copy of Arkham City. No, he wasn't. There. Wow. Okay. Like I said, That's the Flashpoint then. Paradox and Killing Joke are the two that sure. I've seen, but there are ones like Batman vs. Robin. Yeah. Um, he's in a few, but yes, I think he actually became more prominently known as the Batman of the Arkham games became his sort of... Yeah, well, I mean, I, mean, I guess the animated too. show is where most animated people shows, yeah. would have had their affiliation with. But it's but... interesting that it's like such a childhood... I feel like in the last week... I was saying this off the mm. air to you, but it's like, you know, this was like this really big tragedy and then watching, like, seeing that, um, like, Ash winning the Pokemon League, <laughs> like, finishing, <laughs> basically achieving this 25-year goal goal yeah. and becoming the very best. It's that weird sort of, like, you jump and you feel 9, 10 again. And right. you watch, like, little... Sc- I've only seen screenshots of it and I was saying to you off the air, mm. I was like, I can't wait to watch that episode. Because it feels like your childhood You've is You've waited finished. your whole life to see that yeah. moment. Yeah. Like, it's the same, eh? Yeah, exactly. Like, that show started when we were born. Yeah. So, it's like, that's weird to think about. That only now is that achieving it. And, yeah, I mean, he's perpetually 10 for 25 years. But <laughs> it almost would have been cool if he was 35. But it almost feels like we've been perpetually 10 ever since he started his journey. Yeah. In a lot of ways. So, so it's... Uh, and <laughs> it's obviously, both ends of the... That's the rejoice and then the sadness side and... 
I think it, you forget how much resonance cartoons have when you grow up the Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah, of course. Which both of these would have sat in that company. Yeah, I think for me, I mean, the two big ones, yeah, Pokemon and Dragon Ball Z was a bit. That was mainly my brother getting me into that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm just thinking of anime because I'm thinking of like One Piece and an initial D, but it's like, mm. one, that's what they played on like Toasted yeah, TV and Yu-Gi-Oh, all that. That's, I mean, yeah. they're all in that, that company and you, you, I find sometimes I occasionally just go and watch an episode out of nowhere mm. because it's like really satisfying and obviously from a pokemon point of view you, you then had the resonance of also video games being attached to yeah of course the tons, show tons. such intrinsically it was a huge part i mean we, we were in this era of the handheld gaming console which the game boy color <laughs> from game boy color nintendo nintendo ds you know you know we don't do that anymore we don't have that same sort of effect. the switch is not near the switch is like way too not to be too tangential right from a video game what do you but the switch is like it's like a portable phone. It's not the same as the, the yeah. It's not, it's not the same vibe because like you think when in primary school you would connect your DSs with the cable and play like race mm. each other and the thing. That was a whole different era. But it's interesting with Switch because I don't own one personally. My sister owns one, but even then she only got one like a year or two ago. Mm. Like after after COVID stuff. They're incredible like, pieces of technology, but it's not the same. No, no. But what I'm remarking on is like the amount of people I see just have one in the house, mm-hmm. and it kind of shocks me. Like I think I see that more often than people have PlayStations in their yeah. houses anymore. Give me a Nintendo Wii any day of the week. I'll take that. <laughs> Terrible visuals, but the motion control side, which was just fun. Yeah. Over oh, they, this, I've tried to play it. on Switches, and I'm like, wow, this is really pretty. It's like this portable TV screen, but yeah, I just don't get the same feeling as what I did when I had Mario Kart, and I'm there like turning the yeah, you got the physical wheel and you're moving. Yeah, it just it felt great. It generally did. Yeah, and it's the fact that it's like been 10, 15 years since that console came out, and I'll still put mine on, and it just has Mario Kart Wii in, in it, <laughs> and I'll get more fun out of that. But it is very nostalgic. I gotta say. One of the things I rewatched in the last week, speaking of things we've waited our entire mm-hmm. childhood for, there is a Chicken Run sequel coming out just a year from now. Can you believe which it? Which I always forgot about that. And a friend of the show, Oscar, actually is is doing a mentorship with a company that's working on Chicken Run sequel right now. So, so that was wild. a fun little story. But we a bunch of us sat down together and rewatched Chicken Run the other night. And it's funny because I was I thought I'm like, it's been a few years since I've seen Chicken Run. I was like, it might have been like twenty eighteen when I saw it. And I, so I, I went through, I looked, I was like, let me actually see. Because I knew there was a Facebook post comparing me to, is it Will from the Inbetweeners? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone always compares me. I remember that night we posted something on Facebook. So I, I found that post, looked up the date, compared it to the podcast. Turns out I last saw Chicken Run, episode six of this podcast. So when you mean wow. Jesse knew we're talking about Dogtooth, I mentioned Chicken Run. But... You know, I remarked then how, like, the film is still generally really funny. And even now, like, I'm watching, like, the dialogue is so whip-smart and the stop-motion animation. I mean, it it is timeless. Mm. It is so timeless, that stop-motion sort of claymation thing, like Wallace and Gromit and all of that. So I'm really excited for it. But the thing that especially this time stood out to me is how it's shockingly overt and thematically dark, that film. I mean, like, the idea of, like, the chickens are going to get sort of axe and murdered all turned into pies and they all have to escape. Like, the stakes are all there. But even, like, the visual, the visuals of, like, the chicken coops and the farm, it, it, it looks like something straight out of not even just Animal Farm, but, like, it looks like a concentration camp. Like, yeah, it's not subtle at all about not. any of that. No. I always remember chickens scaring me as a younger... As a younger boy. Yeah. Some of the... Vi- the chickens just smiling at you is just... That's enough to... 
freak you out. Yeah, it was something about it because I was someone who really likes um, Ardman, and mm. I really like obviously the Wallace and Gromit stuff. Yeah. Which also, those like those three specials, the particularly the original three specials, they they don't shy away from being quite dark sometimes. Sure, I mean, yeah. They have that comical element too, but it's like the, the way that they shoot sad or dark scenes still makes villains look very menacing. Yeah. Um, and I think and everyone's Run, so tall in Chicken Run. The adults, are so say, tall. Chicken Run really takes it to the next level, though. Mm. Like those earlier sequences when they're in, like that chicken gets chosen and, and yeah. killed. Oh, it's it's insane. Silhouetted dark shark and I can see you, it before you, my open the door with the axe right there <laughs> everyone's just depressed for the next 10 minutes like yeah no they weren't afraid to do it back then which I really I really appreciate it yeah and even just like yeah you got fascism and Marxism and that but the commentary on feminism as well like it's an almost all female cast and it's like they kind of play with that they're all in love with Mel Gibson which is like sure but then even they turn that on their head where it's like all the sort of the knitting and the sewing and all these things that they would do as pastimes contribute to the the machine that actually helps them escape at the end of the movie mm-hmm. like it's just a lot of genius little things sprinkled in there and it's fantastic since since we were on that sort of tangent about childhood yeah. memories i wanted to bring up chicken run of course but zeke not to mention the whole mel gibson savior complex gets completely turned on its head it does yeah in that film i got a good chuckle and it, it, he's escaped and it's like sort of the we're going into the third act and he's he's on his little um What's it called? Like a cartwheel thingy? Oh, and yeah. And he's singing the Lone Wanderer or something. <laughs> from Fallout. <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. But no, you're right. It turns that completely on its head. And it's like, it's actually the characters themselves. And it's like, it's Ginger prep talking the, the I forget, the military chicken guy. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they do it on their own. It's great. It's fantastic. And he comes and like, kind of helps out at the end of the day. But yeah, it's oh, it's a great film. It is. I cannot wait for the sequel. Probably, probably got to give it a watch before because I'm very hazy on. I remember the first fifteen minutes a lot. Yeah, but yeah, I would say the past. music slaps hard. <laughs> that you trying <laughs> to gotta... trying to stay in with the lingo of the kids? I know. I'm trying to be hip. Slaps, slaps hard. To answer to... your question, Jake, what I've watched in the mm. last week. Yeah. Um, I didn't really keep digging my heels in the blockbuster admittedly oh, I'll, I'll talk about that but don't you worry you can talk about that and save us both having to um, I didn't catch a lot of um, f- f- uh, stuff obviously I in the last week finished my master's your last degree. week was insane little, though to little, be fair yeah little uh, I'll do it career update thank you golf clap <laughs> five and a half years for a golf clap that's what I needed um, I didn't get a golf clap after three years <laughs> no you didn't no. actually we probably did Go back to episode 56, The Graduate. We probably gave each other golf claps. Probably. I reckon we did. We totally did. We can (laughs) fact check that. But, um, yeah, look, to be honest, I caught... um, I've started the docuseries FIFA Uncovered, which follows basically an exploration into the commercialization of FIFA, Mm. which, you know, we live in in a world where FIFA is the yearly game that comes out to a lot of us and is also the international body of soccer mm. the sport and are obviously at their, their the epitome of their jobs is is telling us who the next world cup city is going to be basically right they're, they're essentially the, the the yeah they're this they're this committee and this body that governs all of the regulation of soccer around the world 
and have become extensively corrupt over that period of, of time. Particularly, what I found quite interesting is, is they give you this, the first half of the first episode is basically the history up until 1974, in which we've had 10 consecutive World Cups that are based on no commercialism, they're they choose cities based off pure objectivity and if they've got facilities. And and then, obviously, a presidential shift happens where this is where the change starts to come in. Coca-Cola mm. starts sponsoring. Sponsorships start leaking into the system. Okay, And it's kind of interesting because, obviously, we've grown up in a world where the first World Cup we would have been alive for is the 98 World Cup. And by then, that's that was the first World Cup that had... Um, the next president after this this first one that set in the motion and and was what's really interesting is only just I think stepped down in the last the last bit but as the last twenty years has followed like the fact that um, Qatar's obviously about to host the World Cup this month mm. um, and how that made no sense from an infrastructural point of view and was a very odd choice for a World Cup and it basically goes on <laughs> it, it explains all these soci like how the associations vote and and how we went from Qatar and the previous one was in Russia, despite the fact the two obvious candidates in those two were the UK for 2018 and the US for the 2022 one. But for some reason, for a questionable reason, we decided to go to these two places that didn't have the infrastructure in place at the time when they were selected. And obviously eludes a lot of corruption, money being passed around. And there is some actual solid proof to this corruption too but it's it is the receipts the receipts watching <laughs> this pure of heart organization that had the best of ten- intentions once again unraveled yeah. by yeah. humanity yep um <laughs> which we'll talk about in the second half of the show yeah <laughs> so i've enjoyed that i've got one episode left in that in that docuseries but nice. I, I have enjoyed that uh, I did catch, and God, I'm, I would have talked about this on the first year of the show. Oh, okay. Um, I caught season two of Bump. Oh which, my God, Bump! Which is, I think uh, season three is coming out or is out now. Is that what's? It happened? might be. I just finished I think season I saw two. that the other I just day. Bump yeah. through season two. Bump. Um, bumped. Wow. Through, yeah. Bump through season two. Um, which is basically essentially just another sort of those like I've talked about. Um, what did I talk about last week? Upright. Was it upright? Yeah, upright. Another Aussie road trip sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And this one is obviously following a, a, a girl who gets pregnant in high school, and the second season definitely obviously follows that line. It's a f- pretty easy watching show. I remember, obviously, it's been a very long time since I watched the first season. Sure, um, do some mental gymnastics to catch up. I had some mental flashbacks, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it, it, I remember sitting and the funny thing is I had a very similar viewing experience. I sat down um, and watched it all in one sitting for season one mm. and then went and did the same thing with season two. I just sat there and watched the whole season because nice. it was just such an easy seamless show. It's nothing like, it's nothing crazy good or anything but it was it's enjoyable it's a compelling enough story i think and the characters are quite like they like they range from likable very flawed Mm. it definitely has like what has the baby teeth i guess without the venom i think i think baby teeth has a bit more uh uh there's there's a lot of double entendres in there baby teeth without the venom yeah it's like being bitten by a snake fangs there you go 
But I, it, I did Aussie enjoy snake? it. I enjoyed it. And yeah, yeah nice. apparently season three is coming out. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, I swear I saw that the other day, and I was, and then he just mentioned bump there. It's all happening. So I might have to give that a watch. Yeah, you're gonna have to bump that third season. There you go. I like it. What about you, Jake? Um, I'll just quickly talk about Blockbuster since I did finish it. I watched all ten episodes. My recommend. Thank you. My recommendation to you, Zeke, because not it it not a lot changed for my opinions on it last week. You can listen to episode one nine nine if you want any of those. But my um, recommendation to you, Zeke, since you haven't really progressed further in it, mm-hmm. just watch episode six. Just watch episode six. is called uh, Parental Control. It is everything I wanted this show to be. <laughs> So one that, out of that ten one episodes. particular episode Jesus. where the actual the plot of that week resonated with what I wanted to be. So it's about the uh, the crew at Blockbuster, and it's funny because there's a couple of characters like Percy and his daughter that just aren't in this episode at all, which I think definitely helped. <laughs> I didn't really particularly care for those characters, um, but they have to do like a stock take, so they have to you know go through and make sure all the DVDs in the right spot, and a lot of them are missing. Mm-hmm. So it's like okay, there's a plot revolved around Blockbuster and around the job of Blockbuster, which is you know finding misplaced DVDs mm-hmm. and doing your stock overhaul. But then the characters' personal lives are getting in the way. Where um, one of the characters, there's this new show she really wants to stream and she doesn't want to get spoiled. And so one day where her husband's not home, um, but you know she has to do the stock intake, so it's like she's struggling to do that. And then you got Timmy, the main dude, who. Um, he keeps getting called in from his parents. But the thing is, they tie it back to Blockbuster because his solution for the parents, instead of, like, nagging and, like, making this fake drama, is to bring them Lilo and Stitch to distract them. But because it's the stock intake, he opens it, and it's a copy of Saw Free. So he has to, like, sell them that film instead of Lilo and Stitch. I'm like, that's great. Like, all these little threads, but they're tying it back to the idea of movies and Blockbuster and video rental and the, the monotony of doing that kind of job. It's, I'm like, why couldn't all the episodes be this way? And I did check. I was like, I wonder if there was a different writer. And indeed, Francisco Cabrella Fio, I believe that's how you pronounce his name, this is the only episode he wrote out of the 10 episodes as a staff writer. So, so he should have got Francesco. I, he should have wrote a few Francesco, more, I reckon. <laughs> Look, it is a, that's a real shame. And I mean, the, my recommendation to you is if you want to show watch a show about... Mm actually working in the location and having comedy based around the location. Yeah. Just watch Superstore. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I think I realized a lot of the writers are from Superstore. We made that joke last week, but checking the IMDb, I think a lot of them were involved. God, then they really missed the mark. Yeah. Because it's for me, because it's like, I sit there and go, I think they achieved it really well in Superstore. That They made a lot. Of, it was insane how many episodes were just based in the store. Yeah. And... Perhaps maybe that's them getting caught so much on the sentimentality of what Blockbuster represents rather than actually just enjoying being in a Blockbuster. Mm. Like, some of the... Because there are some real hairy-fairy episodes of Superstore. But they buy the... Emo- they earn the emotional resonance to have those hairy-fairy episodes. Right. Whereas, I remember that first episode when they do that big monologue about what this represents and oh mm. we're small business but we're not small business and I remember being like that's very dramatic for a first episode pilot. sure like it because, feels like they're wrapping up the show already yeah and a big and a big speech is quite a commonplace thing in a pilot because the big speech helps basically tie what the show is going to represent what the story and the journey is going to take sure but often it's used in comedic sense so I know in community it's Jeff trying to spiel trying to get everyone to stop fighting so he pretends they're a, a community yeah like and then in in superstore there's one about like 
working in the store, but not like being like in your mid to late twenties and still working in retail. Yeah, it's yeah. like a crisis of working in the store and not finding any meaning in it. And it's really interesting because, and then there's even in stuff off the top of my head. It's like, well, Ted's got one in How I Met Your Mother. He talks about like the big love of his life mm. and goes on that big dialogue with Robin at the end of that episode. And we're like, oh, we're going to follow this first season's about following Ted's relationship with Robin, his mm. aunt. So we're like the aunt Robin. <laughs> and then in um in Brooklyn Nine Nine, it's uh, it's the the conversation uh, Holt has with Andy Samberg's character Peralta right. about responsibility. And like we're like, okay, well, the journey's about Jake becoming accountable and being a a responsible police officer. I still haven't done that personally. Yeah, but it's interesting because <laughs> when I saw the end of that one, I was like, oh, <laughs> they're trying to justify being small business, but it's this weird like Netflix is this streaming conglomerate that has brought this thing about this competitor they destroyed, <laughs> and it's this weird self awareness. Look, I mean, like. I'm. I agree. That's what the show should be about. Is like the the um, persistence of a small business, and I, and I like the idea of. It doesn't really make any sense functionally. The fact that the the higher corporate end of Blockbuster, are like okay, well you're, you're you're your own store now. You could just keep the name Blockbuster. That's kind of what they infer. Which is, I'm, I don't but have to get into any of that. In, but I, I think for me, one of the big red flags was they introduced the mall. Like, mm. the, the surrounding shops so quickly. Yeah, half and I, the show takes place in the, in the party store next door. It's like, why? And it's like, I don't mind us including them, like, because these blockbusters used to be in rundown mall complexes. They were a collection of mm. five, even here in Australia, it's a car park, a blockbuster, and then normally, like, three or four, like, fast food shops. Or It was, like, sure. a collection of shops. So I don't mind being like, oh, it's one of those grid um, malls, but the first season should just be in Blockbuster. Mm. Then you start to expand outwards. Oh, that, what's the story of the small business next door? What's this, that, and the other? Like, yeah, you start to and you bring them in for comedic effect. But in the first episode, they were like, "We got this plan where we're going to include all these stores." And I know mm. what they're trying to do. They're trying to lay the seeds so these eventually become plot-related things. And yeah. they introduce the bar because the bar is a really good place to have characters yeah. sitting at the end of an the episode. Bar. Yep. Yep. And but like you said, it's like there's so much of the party store, and it's like so weird. Like, it's just like if you're gonna bank on the iconography of Blockbuster, take place more in Block, and that's why I love that episode six. Yeah. Almost the entire the the I think his name's Percy, the guy who runs the party store, the landlord. He's not in that episode, and I think that's part of the reason why I like that episode quite a lot. Is because it's just about Blockbuster, yeah. and any plot lines that revolve around Blockbuster tie back into the idea of movies. And a lot of good movie jokes in there. The other one, just because we are doing Scorsese this week, of course. Sure. There is a great Goodfellas nod in the final episode of Blockbuster. And and it's not like an overt character makes joke about Goodfellas. It's the way they use the camera. The way is they create the, the, the music. It's the music. It's, it's the, the exact the... same tune. It's the yeah. exact same tune. The Buona and Timmy going around like talking to everyone. I'm like, that's perfect. Perfect Goodfellas reference. Don't need to name drop the movie. Boom. And isn't it interesting that they could actually... In a, sh- you know, and even to like use a more localized example of a rundown shop mm. using comedic effects, but using movie motifs t- for comedic effect. Yeah. Except the 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 background and the setting, the shop they chose, that didn't make sense at all. Why they were doing movie references mm. in it for comedic effect? Whereas you got a blockbuster, you can pretty much homage movies for comedic you effect. You do whatever you want. So like. That's where your comedy should be hitting. You, you're, you're basically making a show about people that love movies. Well, 
use movies more in your stories. Yeah. Because half the first three episodes I've watched, two of them are these weirdly obsessive over-the-top romantic arc stories. And it's like, you're in a movie store, and yet there's so little about your movie store show mm. that is about movies. I will say it felt like it was getting better at like interweaving movie jokes and references. There's one in episode six. It's if you look in the background, you will notice some of like the the aisles, the categories. They've like made their own custom ones, so they've made like a white savior category of films. I'm like, that's great. As a little background joke, kind of like BoJack. If you pause it, you can laugh at it, but it's not in your face. Mm. They pepper it throughout, and it gets better throughout. But again, I walked away from Blockbuster being like, such a missed opportunity. I hope they get... Would you do season two, though? Would you watch season two? I will, with the hopes that that guy's writing more of the episodes. <laughs> oh, goodness. But, you know, yeah, it might be it one of those things is. that it's... This is that... We could look back retrospectively. That could be... The show could completely take off in a second season, and we sure. just look back and go, man, that first season was kind of meh and forgettable. But, boy, season two and three were amazing. Like, it's like one of those things that... Yeah. Very rarely will a first... To quote you, Jake... Very rarely will a first season of a show slap. <laughs> um. Well, look, look, they've got the characters. It's all there. It's all established. And hopefully they read this feed. I don't know if my feedback is consistent with everyone else's. I could, I could be off the mark. People could love the show. But hopefully they take these lessons. They, they have these characters now. They have the layout. And they take it to more interesting places. And the way it ends is like, oh, there's a thousand percent going to be more story. Yeah, it ends. It's not even a cliffhanger. It just kind of ends on this downer note, where it's like, okay, well, they got to resolve some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, the the GoPro video of the proposal thing. Like, I'm not even going to tell you what any of that's in reference to, but it's like they got to they got to pay that off. Yeah. So well, I'm expecting odd. it to be a second season. It'd be very hard to see them not do a second season. I, I think it's a very cheap show to make too. It's not a. I mean, it would I, be cheaper if they stayed in the damn blockbuster. Yeah. <laughs> But they're not going to do that. that just, you know what it does? Uh, it just sounds like anyway. a bunch of people that didn't really appreciate Blockbuster wrote a show about Blockbuster. And they yeah, just really like wanted it's... to write a comedy show. That Exactly. Was... That profited off the iconography of Blockbuster. Yeah. that That's how it feels. And like I said, it's, it's not a horrible show, but it was a big yeah. missed opportunity, at least the way I feel. Sure. Did you catch anything else? I did. So I watched, since I'm on this sort of negative-ish train, I'll talk about this short animated film I saw. This one-star animated <laughs> film. <laughs> I gave it one star. This is I'll a like, rare for you. You're I'll not like, nearly as cynical as me. I, I'm actually going to read the review because it does sort of encapsulate Is it safe for feelings. our audiences? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I read it to you in the car. I read it to you, but I wouldn't tell you what the film was. So I said, 10 years ago... This would have been a Simpsons couch gag, directed by Don Hertzfeld, targeted at consumerism. Today, this is what Disney put behind their subscription payroll. I'm, of course, referring to, and I'm sure you've heard of this, the Mm -hmm. collaboration between Lucasfilm and Studio Ghibli. That has happened. Have you heard of this? No, what is this? They did a three-minute short, Studio Ghibli did a three-minute short film on Baby Yoda, on Grogu. Oh, so it's basically just 2D sketch animation thing of Grogu and the dust bunnies from like Spirited Away, um, and it's it's just a cute little animated thing. But despite the cuteness of it, it's like we, we, removing like the credits and everything. It's two minutes and twenty three seconds. It it's it's even more like brief than than the aforementioned Simpsons couch gag. Yep. That I made the joke about, and it just feels like. 
like I I would have been excited about oh Lucasfilm joining Studio Ghibli they're going to mix their IP yeah, and animation get... style I just can't get excited about that when Disney's involved when Disney's putting this behind Disney Plus and I say behind a subscription wall because when I look this up it's called Zen Grogu and Dust Bunnies 22 2022 short film I look it up on YouTube and there's no actual release of it on YouTube and it's like this is per- this is what Disney should just be putting out there on the internet for fun, yeah. Exactly. And it's like, I'm not going to watch a reaction video to watch a short film. So the way I see it, you're putting this behind a payroll. And it feels like an ad for The Mandalorian. I'm sorry. I cannot be excited or infused by this cutesy little commercial. It's, yeah. So I, I couldn't put... It's not getting a lot of love. It's getting a real middle-of-the-road feeling on Letterboxd. Sure. So. But, like, what is there to it? It's Grogu communicating with Dust Bunny. Like, what... You know what I mean? Like, I appreciate the animation style. It is cute, and it is, you know, gorgeous sort of 2D animation that we do yearn more of. But, you know what I mean? It, well, it just feels like nothing. I don't know. If it, like I said, if it wasn't for Disney, if it were the other, if it was Ghibli and Lucasfilm, and they were doing a proper crossover, but they were doing something with a bit more meat to the bone, I could understand the enthusiasm, the excitement. But, with Disney World, I can't. I just can't get excited. It definitely, a lot of the letterbox community definitely mm. agrees with your consensus. Okay. Um, that it, it's mostly just corporate sponsoring. The fact that it's behind a paywall. Yeah. It's very tough to get behind. You know, Disney's about to have its 100th anniversary. Oh, really? And <laughs> um, it gets tougher to like Disney stuff. Like, would I, like, you know, I've got a partner that really wants to go to Disneyland. I don't mind going to Disneyland. Oh, well, that, that's but, a whole other experience. But if you ask my opinion of, of Disney in the last five to ten years, it's, it's getting really hard to be, mm. like, trying to sell it. Like, sell myself on them in particular because yeah. they just feel like they own so much of, like, this intellectual properties. And at best, they we just get these Frankenstein versions that are so... Thinly veiled capitalistic pushes. <laughs> well, the thing is, like Disney's identity has just gotten so. Like when you think of when you think of the nineties, when we yeah. were kids and we were watching like Be- the Beauty and the Beast VHS tape, and you had mm. all the commercials and Disneyland ads that played before on the VHS tape. Like there was an aesthetic to Disney, and the films were great. Most of the films were fantastic, beautiful two D animation, wonderful stories brought back to life from these old fairy tales. There was an identity there, and now it's like you've you go on Disney Plus, and it's like okay, I get Pixar. They they purchased Pixar early enough that they were able to establish that into their iconography. Yeah. But then you got Marvel and Simpsons, and just what's the other Star Wars? <laughs> yeah. I forgot. You know what I mean? Like just none of this stuff aesthetically gels. And like when you go to Disneyland, it's a whole other experience. I'm not going to comment on like. Disneyland, because I, I don't know about its pricing structure. I imagine it's gross and dirty. I imagine people throw stuff on the floor. and But I'm also like, okay, there's some cool experiences there. You get to see, like, you know, Sully and Mike Wazowski walking around. I'm sure that's cool, mm. you know. Um, there's definitely a... I feel like there's but, definitely... A, but there's a sense of wonder in, in if anything, it's the, it's the most uh, purest vision of capitalistic notion. <laughs> looking at this theme park that's just a testament to all of these creations but it's like so 
everything's Disney. It's it's like that joke in the Lego movie about everything being owned by Octane. Like, <laughs> like, That's what this is. And it's like, I'm just shocked that this... I mean, all the 20th Century Fox properties. All of that stuff. Mm. See how they run comes to Disney Plus in less than a week. It's a, the, you don't watch See How They Run and identify that. Or even films like Nomadland or yeah. Free Billboards with Disney. And it's like... I understand they're like a, a, a subcategory of Disney now where it's like it's all under like Searchlight um, and Star and all of these mm. other labels. I get that. But, uh, you know, when you go to Disneyland, I imagine it's going to be kind of weird seeing all these different things forcefully gelled together mm. in the name of making extra money. It, yeah. it is... Look, I'm not going to get too much into it. It's just when I watch this little two-minute short film that I can't not see that angle to the whole thing. I think it's... And what's interesting is, uh, though I know we're not doing Spielberg this week on the Director's Corner, but we did talk a little bit about the Spielberg career and and, and sort of how he was the quintessential blockbuster director. Mm. And the, the, the backlash and criticism he got for being the, up until the 90s, this sort of, like, popcorn movie sure. director who was like, oh, he's just making stuff that gets bums in seats and money, mm. money in the box office. Because... That used to be the the greatest means of raising monetary awareness. I mean, sure. um, only Disneyland was the only place where you could see films come to life, and they, and I mm. guess it was Universal Studios too. But it's like they what, got WB Movie World and all that here yeah. in Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and it's one of those things where it's it's like he was this director that got dealt with so much backlash, but he still created these pop. You know, we we talked about Jaws. We've talked about Indiana Jones, and how they're still entertaining, fun, but they still have substance to them. Whereas, it's been very hard in the last five years to see any original properties come out and have like every time we see a new Star Wars related thing come out. Even though I love Star Wars, but like, and you know, it's but it feels like the only way we ever could see creative outlets from some directors now is they get pushed into a to an Andor, which is really just a spy show like yeah i'm hearing it's good but i just like i i just i, I find it hard to believe but it's just a genre <laughs> but it's just genre related it's just what i'm saying is it's just genre profiling it's like they've gone yeah. oh well we haven't got a star wars property that's really capitalizes on the espionage genre like the espionage spy genre let's create this show in yeah. that image and we'll pick one of our characters from one of the films and we'll just dump him into a show yeah and then, you know it's great for that that guy's career and <laughs> and uh, you know all parties involved but it's like oh well that's what that basically that story there's and I don't mind that's all this is now like the rumor out there is Bob Odenkirk's getting nabbed for a Marvel film and my response is like, oh well good for him I couldn't care less about what the property is what the character is what the story is yeah I'm like oh good for him he's gonna get a few extra bucks <laughs> that's it that's it because it's like that's it. or you know you, you do these things where it's like oh they like Deadpool so let's create She-Hulk to have that same self-awareness fourth wall breaking and then that leads to the question well what's that going to happen when she's in an Avengers game is she mm. going to start fourth wall breaking why ever the Thanos substitute is yeah. comes into screen oh sorry I just got to talk to the camera like it's, <laughs> you know you know and I think it's just one of those things where it's just a shame because every Million, millions and millions of dollars that get poured into these shows that have nothing more than this thing that once was absolutely criticised that Spielberg did. Spielberg hasn't done nearly as much of that the anymore. Dif- the difference between Spielberg, especially his sort of blockbuster opening 70s, 80s Spielberg um, era, is that getting bums in seats meant making a good movie. 
Yeah. Getting bums in seats these days doesn't require you to make a good movie. You can, make, you, can make, you can make four Love and Thunder and make $800 million. Yeah. Like, <laughs> at least back in the 70s, you had to make a good movie to get Couldn't that kind more. of money. And that's, so, that's yeah. actually the truth. It's the... Because then it becomes this... Now it's about IP. That's all anyone cares it's, about. It's IP and it's this homework mandate. Oh, I've watched 40 of the 42 films. I need to watch the other two. That's the part, that's the part of my brain. Like I talked about last week, I have like a kind of an inkling and curiosity to see Black Panther in the cinemas. And then I hear, like, oh, that's meant to be the final film in Phase 4. And my instinct is, as a completionist, as someone who likes to get platinum trophies on his PlayStation games, i got to watch the remaining Phase 4 stuff that I haven't seen, even though I could not care less about any of it. And I think that's how they're frankly this getting This is a really good conversation because this is the Scorsese corner. <laughs> this is the Scorsese corner. We're going to get <laughs> into that. Openly criticized the Marvel movies. Uh, a genius. Brilliant man. It's the way to do it. So he's onto it. And I, I like that people three years later are only now being like, oh, he might have had a point, actually. It's like he had, a point. Right he had a point when he said it after Endgame finished. He had the point when they did the first rotation circle shot in Avengers. And you looked at <laughs> it and went, that's about four movies that are about to come out out of this. <laughs> oh, God. It ended up being a lot more than four. Oh, isn't it? Than that. Yeah. It's, I've, it's... I've also seen two docos. Sure. Uh, well, really, I saw one new one. I rewatched Fire. It feels like an annual thing to do oh, these. It's just so good, though, every It's time. just brilliant. I mean, my, maybe the most engaging documentary of all time. Engaging, I'm using very specifically. I would say inter- definitely entertaining. Yeah, that's, it's, yeah. It, like, for a, for a narrative by itself, and all they do is edit the narrative together. They don't try and <laughs> overstimulate. No, because we were talking about it with the, uh, the sure. Crypto King... Uh, the crypto, sorry, the crypto one, well, not crypto, uh, GameSpot saga. Um, oh, yeah, it's yeah like GameStop saga. Yeah, stimulation, yep, yep. or you'd look at the Adam McKay stuff where it's like, let's just cut to some random things. Like, you can't, you can't pay attention to the story. I'm just going to break all conventions, and that's my convention. Right. Um, where it's like... Zeke felt like just... slapping Adam McKay in the face today. Sorry, McKay. <laughs> um, but it's like one of those things where it's like, oh, the story is just so good. It's all that it needs to be. Yeah. It's a story. And, and you know, I have to admit, the fire aesthetic, the put down the middle of the camera, God, that's been copied to death now because of fire. <laughs> the straight down the barrel interview style. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it wasn't the first one to do it, but... I feel like it was the one that really rose it to the, the oh, this is what documentary convention is now. It's so, so weird. I'm watching the FIFA docuseries, right. and they've got them parked on the left and the like the left side of frame. Oh, and you kind of miss it. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, oh, the traditional way of doing this. <laughs> oh, well. I mean, hey, look, what, whatever works for them. I think what's so special about this, and we can talk about fire every day for the Lin Long Day. We still haven't done it as a full proper episode on this podcast is, like, the hollowness of fake promises is, like, a tale as old as time. But what makes it so special, not just through the editing, because at the end, the, the end of the day, the editing is what makes this film, because it really does capture your interest and put mm-hmm. together all these slices and advertisements and interviews and it's into a coherent way. The countdown, like, the directorial the countdown. Yeah. countdown it, like, that's a choice from the director being like, I want to put this Days Until Festival yeah. countdown in there. And... That was genius for the anxiety and the real bubble. But everything's just building to that day. And it's like there is just no hope on planet Earth that they're going to give. I still remember my old boss from my school job in Padbury. He's the one who recommended it to me. And you coincidentally had watched it that same week. And we both talked about it on the podcast. 
I can't remember what episode that. That might have been like episode four or five. It was very early in our history, mm. and we still haven't done it on the show. But yeah, tales of older time told through a digital modern day Web 2.0 lens of how easy the internet is to manipulate. I mean, you got people on Twitter spending eight bucks on this new verification tick, tanking stock markets, tanking them, destroying companies. The internet is a fascinating place. So we shouldn't it's poke at it too much. Like. It's a madhouse. <laughs> with, with our little corner here in the Cinema Sideshow podcast. The other doc I watched, which I haven't seen before, we've both been very hyped about this, is Fire of Love on mm. Disney+. Plus. So French volcanoist, volcanoist, I guess is the term, for Katja and Maurice Kraft, two very famous married explorers of volcano, volcanoes. And this documentary really shows the extent of how much TV coverage they got. They were probably the most famous... A couple in this field of, I guess, like this subgenre of um, geography research for a long time for mm. the 70s and the 80s. And this, I think the doco is pretty fantastic. It's narrated by Miranda July, of all people, which I found funny because she's doing her narration in English and the rest of the doco is in French because it's all, it's almost all entirely home archival footage shot by the two explorers themselves. So there's that air of authenticity where it's like that's 90% of the doco with the odd animation and the odd reenactment. In I think there's literally one reenactment in the whole thing. But otherwise, it's 16mm 4x3 footage that is just filled with, you know, obviously the themes of their love, but the danger and the excitement of this exploration and how dangerous this Mother Earth and nature mm. is when untamed and even just the beauty of, like, the molten red lava. I mean, that's all red iconography right there. So I love the use of red in this film. We'll talk about the use of red in Taxi Driver as well <laughs> coming up. But I just thought all of that really gelled beautifully. The fact that it is their footage they shot themselves, you can, you're actually seeing the beauty and danger of this untamed nature through their eyes. You mm. really understand their passion and their shared passion together. Um, there's a great moment where Miranda July questions or challenges uh, something they say in one of the in- television interviews they do where they say they're not filmmakers. Um, basically, I think Maurice makes a joke saying, like, I'm not a filmmaker. I'm an explorer that has to film what he does in order to keep doing exploration. But then Miranda July, and I say she, as in uh, the film is edited by Erin Casper, so it's probably her actually making that assumption and getting Miranda July to read it after. The, but in, in terms of the actual film itself, she's questioning them by using their own footage against them of saying... Well, what about this shot where you used to show like the the scale of the events you're going on? Or what about this shot where you and your friends are riding these horses and you've got the music playing and it's kind of this big funny joke? Like, you guys are filmmakers. Mm. And in the way that the film juxtaposed that with, um, you know, these devastating eruptions that happened in Colombia in the 80s that killed tens of thousands of people and how everyone in that footage is just staring directly down the lens of the camera. Because they're nowhere near as familiar with the camera camera as these two are, and it's just there's so many interesting things happening in terms of the themes and the way it's all edited, the way man, uh, geez, Miranda July's narration plays in. Um, I just thought it was really quite fantastic, and much like the logline, which is what excited both of us, I imagine the film also does acknowledge very early on that they do die during one of these explorations. Mm in 1991 so the film even though it doesn't really go into it too much it does plant that seed at the start of these two will die before the end of the film and i think that works but it's really about well. more drawing you into this world of danger and beauty right oh absolutely well, it sucks you into because i feel like when you hear like oh this couple they like exploring vol- explore exploding volcanoes 
your first instance is probably like what they sound absolutely out of their minds. Mm. It sounds incredibly dangerous, and this film really uh, contextualizes that. And you see it through their lens, and you realize like, wow, this is. I understand the excitement and the thrive to do this, and the fact that they probably don't care that they're dead. Yeah, and I mean that's interesting. Like obviously the nature, nature danger line. I, I remember. A- a prominent documentary I studied in high school called mm. Grizzly Man. Okay. And that was a Werner Herzog documentary. Oh. Um, he's a famous, obviously, German documentarian. And that, that centered around uh, a man who went and lived with the grizzly bears in Alaska, <laughs> in the Alaskan Plains. And he yeah. would go up there and he would just live with them. And it was that whole, like, being absolutely obsessed with living in, the, in this beautiful Alaskan sort of uh, valley side where it's surrounded by all these grizzlies and he would like treat them almost like pets like he'd go up and hug them and he knew when to like go away from danger and stuff and his name was I can't remember his name was Timothy something but um yeah and obviously inevitably his death (laughs) was they sort of talk about the managing a population he was an activist for not killing the animals but they were like talking about why they do go and kill some of the grizzlies to control population and and that side of it. And him and his girlfriend at the time were killed by one of these bears. They came up to their their tent. They actually had the recording. I think they were recording while it was... Oh, God. Um, And it's a very good documentarian about that sort of like understanding the the ecological awareness side Mm. and being a mission, being... But also being completely consumed by nature's beauty, but also nature's wrath is the it's that fine um, structure. And obviously, they didn't tr- really explore the relationship side. I don't remember being that much as, sure, as much as yeah. That's the driving point of sort of this of this, this the film, burning yeah. love documentary. You know, it's like a Elvis song. <laughs> um, throw it back to an earlier episode this year. And I will say as well that one of the things they tackle in in terms of like tens of thousands of people dying in these small communities with these volcanoes. Mm is they were part of, you know, this big campaign of activism uh, so that they could explain to government agencies why you need to evacuate in certain cases. And I think prior to their involvement, it used to just be raw data they would send and they wouldn't be able to interpret it. And then a lot of the communities would would burn to death. It was insane. And they, Mm. they were part of this big movement to sort of translate the information to government bodies so they knew when and when not to evacuate. And isn't that remarkable? Because, you know, you see the log line to this and you probably think, oh, they were just, like, adventure seekers. Yeah, daredevils. Yeah. Daredevils that went, it went wrong. And then it's like it's like everything. It's like every, you know, it shows like that every life is precious and stuff mm. and you don't really know what's going on in one's life until after the fact, that post-mortem style. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, a, it's a beautiful documentary. It really... And, and, like, there was hundreds of hours that they could have gone through when they edited down to a nice, tight 90-minute film. Just very engaging, very beautiful, very sad as well at the end because you mm. care for these characters. And I won't get into how they portray, you know, that 1991 incident, but it, it's sad and it's absolutely worthwhile, this documentary, so I recommend it. Yeah, no now, Zeke. Yes. We can... Mm, up to you if you want to skip career updates. We sort of skipped it last week. I know you're waiting for a piece of paper to be signed, but... <laughs> I am, I am. Yeah, I, I will still hold off. We're going to have to just wait until the 200s. Um, I was oh, hoping we'd have episode some iron, un, iron clan moves. But more importantly, Jake, 200 episodes mm. of this show. 
we were lucky enough, and we'll, we'll give him a little shout out before this, but we did catch up for dinner with with friend of the Joe show, friend, friend of, of the, the Joe, Joe. Uh, Jack Bear, <laughs> who we're gonna we're gonna get him back on this show. But, he's got to come back. Um, Some, he's been mentioned many many times in the last hundred. 143-ish episodes. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously, but you know, to be uh, your colleague for nearly four years mm. on this show and how much has happened in career and updates and all that, and it's, it is quite interesting. And I, I would like to think I would have thought in the last week of an activity to do on this particular episode. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything. Uh, we, um, we've definitely sort of stuck to a, stuck to a regular schedule for today's episode. Yes. Okay. That's fine. Yeah. 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 Get used to it, folks. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And to be honest, it does fall at a weird time every 100 episodes because you're close to the end of year awards, which is always a bit of fun. We've Mm. got four more episodes for that. So Four? Eight? I think we've got eight eight episodes before that. No, yeah, it's eight. Yeah. Yeah. So we're actually a little bit further away than I thought we were. I mean, yeah, because every 50 episodes... But then you have every 52 is the award, so we're slowly itching further and further away between our milestone episodes and then our award episodes. Very true. Two or eight would be then the... Yeah, so not too far away. There's not a lot of films left to cover. and I have no idea what the Oscar race looks like at the moment. I don't even know. It's only a few months away. I have no idea what... I guess, like, Amsterdam, but I don't think that reviewed overly well. No, it didn't. Um... Well, Empire of Lights around the corner. I'm actually... I was so excited for that. We talked about it last week, but apparently that's not amazing either, which is a bit mm. surprising to the me. The Kate Blanchett one, though, is getting a lot of... Oh, my God. I can't wait for that. For Tar. Tar. I cannot wait for Tar. Something tells me that we'll probably be talking about that come Oscar season. Yeah, well, hopefully bloody comes out around the corner soon. Yeah, but... Maybe, maybe Glass Onion will win the best picture next year. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> you but there's, there's a lot, of, lot to talk about. Um... In terms of, we've still got a few more weeks, like you said, before end of year. Um, 200 episodes, though, is a is a really fair, strong effort, since once upon a time we did a show that did, what, 17 episodes? <laughs> so, you lost count, something like that. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, because it's like, even, I, I swear to God, you pitched me the idea of this podcast the day that we recorded and published episode one. It's a very quick summer's day turnaround. Was from memory, and we just decided on a whim to like, oh, we both seen Private Life recently. Let's just, let's just talk about Private Life and some other films. Oh, next week we'll do Roma. And there was no expectation. Well, yeah, well, there was no expectation that we would do it every week for 20 weeks, 40 weeks, 100, 200. So yeah. it's it is kind of, and the fact that we've never missed a week, never, never, ever, never. Which is a bit now, so. two, we've, we are now entering our two hundred and seventy eighth hour of recordings, which Long is times. that's a lot of us talking about junk. Yes, <laughs> and my movies. career, my career muse might hold off for another week, but sure, that's okay. We've all got a time. We've only done two hundred before. What's two oh one? What's another one or two to go? Exactly. So I guess it is time for us to move into our film of the week, mm. and it's also our fortieth director's corner but jake who is the director and what are we watching of course we're talking about martin scorsese and his 1976 film taxi driver yeah people do anything in front of a taxi driver i mean anything people too cheap to to rent a hotel room don't drive a hurry up will you people want to embarrass you 
It's like you're not even there. It's like, you know, like a taxi driver doesn't even exist. This city here is like an open sewer, you know? It's full of filth and scum. I think I know what you mean, Travis. But it's not going to be easy. How do you guys get to be a Secret Service man? What? I was just curious, because I thought maybe I'd make a good one. Hey, what kind of guns do you guys carry? 38s, 45s, 357 Magnums, something bigger, maybe. Hi. I'd like to volunteer. Why? Why? Because I think that you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. The taxi driver is looking for a target. Thanks. Getting ready. Getting organized. Preparing himself for the only moment in his life that will ever mean anything. How much for everything? 350 for the Magnum, 250 for the 38, one and a quarter for the 25, 150 for the 380. That taxi driver's been staring at us. You talking to me? You talking to me? I don't know if it's weirder, you or me. You talking to me? Well, who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. A mentally unstable Vietnam veteran works as a nighttime taxi driver in New York City where the perceived decadence and sleaze feed his urge for violent action, attempting to save a pre-adolescent uh, night worker in the process. <laughs> Good save. Thank you. The children are listening to our I was taxi driver. Gotta keep it gotta keep it professional, buddy. But uh <laughs> it's a tough woman, it's an R rated film, but I it's... know, it's, I don't I don't think uh I don't think the kiddies should be watching No taxi one should driver. watch this film if you're under the age of eighteen. I remember watching a review for Avengers Infinity Ward and <laughs> it ended with <laughs> It shouldn't be watched by children under 17. <laughs> it's because of the ending. <laughs> when everyone turns to ash. Oh. That was really funny. Um, no, this, this film doesn't put any punches. It's, no, uh, it's, it's quite... I mean, it's, an, uh, it's a, definitely it's a 1970s R-rated film, which means it's probably more accurate to being an M.A. Well, it's, it's funny because there was so much controversy about the violence, which really only happens at the end. There's really no overt violence until the last, like, 15 minutes. But considering how much trouble Scorsese went to get it sort of approved, was going to get an X rating, and mm -hmm. they ended up, what, desaturating the color of the blood in order to get it that, that final brownie push goop. out. Yeah, which I think Scorsese himself actually prefers. I think, I imagine, like... Um, you know, Michael Chapman probably wishes the, the the more vibrant red version was out there in the wild, the original print, but um, you're right. It's a 70s R, which now probably barely passes for M, maybe MA. Well, it was only two weeks ago we did Reservoir Dogs on here. And yeah, a 90s R. And that's a 90s R. And one of them is drastically more violent than the other. Oh, my God. Within, within the space of 16 years. Mm-hmm. That's just the the sort of exponential curve of of grading and violence. I think there are this would never be less than an MA because of the themes are just so dark. Yeah, and really... it's still an incredibly 
seedy film. It's probably the best yeah. way to put it. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's an MA on on its best day. So it's still not a film you'd ever recommend to anyone young. Um it's an MA on its best day. <laughs> That's um, a great quote. Thank you. Um <laughs> classifications are so weird too cuz they really don't age well classifications cuz like you almost feel like they should not that this would just take way too much manpower, but mm. they should always undergo almost a review every 20 or so years to see if they still fit in their contemporary classification. But Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because like, I'm pretty sure films do need to get reclassified. If, Say, for example, this Blu-ray of Taxi Driver I got right here, I'm pretty sure that would have got reclassified when they printed that Blu-ray. And uh, the, uh, to be fair, the actual the logo would be updated. Mm. There's ways to find out. I think the, the way they actually... T- write out the um like if, if does it say high level violence is that what it says high it? impact violence okay see high impact to me implies that it was re-rated recently as in like the last what 20 years if it said a high level violence that seems like a term that for like an older classification I, i'm just shooting in the dark right now yeah, it's very interesting perhaps the theme is just to warrant it to sit in the r and that's fair enough um, Taxi Driver, right? Mm. And more, more, uh, I really wanted to watch Mean Streets. I still haven't seen it. I really wanted oh, really? to get it in before. Yeah, I watched it a few, couple of years ago. Um, I didn't mind it. I had a, I loved, <laughs> I listened to a Tribeca talk with Scorsese and De Niro and mm. how they went through their, their own catalogue of their films together. Yep. So starting um, with Mean Streets and then Taxi Driver. It was weird though, because it had like, yeah, it had Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas, Casino. But they also threw Last Waltz in there, which was very odd. Nice. It's like, I don't remember De Niro, but apparently yeah, he, De Niro he was, the was lead there. Guitarist. He was there. Oh, okay. But Interesting. He just obviously isn't included in a documentary on the band. But weirdly <laughs> enough, as we've discussed on the show before, we've done a lot of Scorsese films, but never done a director's corner. No. So we've done The Irishman, The Last Waltz, and The King of Comedy. So, um, all films, I, I think, nicely represent his uh, filmography in terms of the you know, one's 70s, one's 80s, and then one's much more recent. In fact, The Irishman is not only his most recent film, but we did it on the podcast three days and three years ago. So, a nice little anniversary tie-in there you for go. us right there. Um, and in addition to the fact that this week is his 80th birthday, one day before your birthday, Zeke. Yes. My twenty so, fifth. Yeah, so. a little bit of gap. <laughs> a little bit younger. You're, you're closer that. to that twenty six year old Travis Bickle age. Yes. Um, how does it make you feel that you're basically the same age as Travis Bickle? Well, seeing as I'm fully qualified and don't suffer any post war, mm, uh, that's true. Symptoms. I, th- I think I'm in a mentally greater state than the guy who takes his shirt off and says, "You talking to me?" Wait, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because uh, I do that. <laughs> Like every man in their life has done that at some point after watching Taxi Driver. <laughs> You're talking to me? I think it's, it's, it's such here. an interesting film because obviously being a, you know, retrospectively, a, what I like about this film is I think it really rewards the film lover, the film goer. Mm. You are a young Tarantino watching this film, you know, to coin two years earlier. And, sure. And, and, you know, obviously he grew up with the Leonis and the and the... Um, oh my god, I've done it again. Um, oh, the other, the again? other, the other Western director. Oh, Zeke, I've done it again. Two, this has happened two weeks ago. It's happening <laughs> again. It's another Sergio. 
It is another Sergio. Oh no! <laughs> and I'm gonna get so much. I just our view, our listeners are furious at you, Zeke. They just because they really liked it too. It was a. <laughs> I'm gonna get it. I know. I remember. He's going. He's going for the phone. He's doing the search. He would get it. He would get it someday, folks. By that time, it will be episode two hundred and one. Sergio Kabuchi. Kabuchi. I didn't say there was a C, but I was not going to botch it, botch it. But you're a young <laughs> him, growing up on the, on these these spaghetti westerns, and then yep. you move more into your late adolescent years, and you're you're in your early twenties working in the cinema, and you see a film like this that's so the neon noir, the neo noir, overly violent, hyper, sort of stylized, stylized, dreamy, hypnotic, um, aesthetic. Yeah. I think that puts a, a resonance and an effect on on filmmakers, and I think this film even carried as had impacts on people that probably wouldn't concede that it did mm. at the time people like ridley scott i reckon this is highly reflective of his 1982 blade runner film interesting um i think there's definitely elements there and obviously you know more recently you look at todd phillips joker and <laughs> you know we've done king mm. of comedy and now we've done taxi driver and they're the two films that's basically just put together and you've got joker yeah which we've also um, done <laughs> episode 39 I think even the, the fact of the matter is and this is definitely a testament to Schrader's writing um, and it makes me feel so much better the reason I'm saying it rewards you for being a film lover is like as soon as you know oh Paul Schrader's written this film you're like you feel like you kind of understand why this film's as good as it is on another level right? because of that slow monotonous thing you know if you really like First Reform like if you like some of the other Schrader films that move really slow but have mm-hmm. like that prolific commentary on loneliness or or primal instincts mm. um, on the human condition, you know, then you are really rewarded by his writing in this film. I think with, I mean, the way that's portrayed, because it, it is in the writing, it's in, it's sort of the sort of the voiceover monologues that mm. Travis um, or Robert De Niro delivers you know being god's lonely man and all it's all in there but in terms of the aesthetic that scorsese brings visually even just the way the movie opens with you know the big gust of smoke as the taxi drives through it you've got these out of focus blurred neon lights and slow motion shots of people sort of mindlessly walking the streets like it's establishing new york as this this disgusting dirty seedy place and then you you plant someone like travis bickle it almost kind of feels like that Sims thing. I don't even know if that's how the Sims is, but you've got like this giant hand, you sort of drop a character into the world and then you just see what happens to this character. Mm. Um, and as someone who, you know, was in the war, I forget, was he a Marine? Was that? Yeah. I think oh. he was a Marine. Yeah. Um, that's that's my memory jogging me right there. But it almost kind of feels like he comes from this place that we haven't seen. So it almost is a bit of a Western angle in there as well, where it's like, here's this man just sort of dropped into this New York world and there's and, a social commentary there too. I mean, mm. this is a post-Vietnam War vet that has been clearly neglected quite heavily of his mental illnesses and condition because the perspective of that war from mm. an American westernized point of view was yeah. they were the bad guys. Mm. They left. They they you know they left on a war wanting to be heroes, came back villains. Because yeah. the complete social perspective shifted over the course of the time when they were deployed. Mm. Um, and there might even be that more selfish aspect for Travis where he's, you know, probably thinking in the back of his head, I fought for this country. 
and this this scumbag town of all these scumbag people this is what i fought for mm. this is what i'm returning back to there's no red carpet there's no nothing and that's what it kind of feels like it's like god has just sort of planted this character in this world and let the chips fall where they may it's like it becomes the wild west at that point where mm-hmm. the film is about him going from this passive character that's very observant of you know the filth and there's the literal filth which is like the roads are all filled with trash and i didn't realize this apparently it was because there was a real life um garbage strike going on which Mm. i think they actually use in the joker as like part of that film's plot is that there's a garbage strike that's why everything's so dirty but in this film they just kind of let it speak for itself it just becomes the aesthetic of the film which i like even more um it 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 grips you into this world and that's i think that's why he's so enticed by this story that is told quite slowly and through this slow burn and, and commenting on loneliness because what on earth is there to live for in this world? And I think for a character like Travis, who's so on the edge, but in the same token, he can get away with having a conversation with a person. He seems like a decent conversationalist. He's quite an, like not an unattractive person. He kind of he looks like a fairly normal person. He's a mm. young guy, he's 26. Um, he's able to swoon... How am I forgetting her name? Uh, Betsy. He's able to swoon Betsy into a couple of dates. Like, there is something about the facade in front of this mm. character that's hiding this deeply rooted but but ever so seething and he could snap at any second this monster that's inside him that's yeah. capable of just complete violence and destruction. And I think that's why it's scarier than anything that, say, Joker portrays where... You know, Joaquin Phoenix, it's a fantastic performance. But it's like, that's just a troubled dude from the word go. Yeah. And it's also... And the the neglect that comes from the character that, you know, Travis's neglect Mm. comes from a world that's sort of understandable and unforgiving because of how it lacks any form of sensitivity and empathy towards anyone. Yeah. Which is a world that, sadly, at times in our darkest times, Feels we like can the real world. We can feel that that link. Whereas you watch the Joker, and my biggest critique has always been how hyperbolized that neglect is. Mm. That it's like, well, no wonder he snaps because it's not the disillusionness of of Rupert Pumpkin, mm. um, <laughs> oh, sorry, Pumpkin, <laughs> Pumpkin, or whatever. Oh, no. um, What's Um throwback? Um, but you know, it's it's not the the disillusionment and the, uh, that of a fanboy who, who is it's in a it's seemingly unforgiving world. But it it's this believability that this guy has gone and done this. Like he thought he'd come back a hero. He thought mm. he'd come back to the praises, and he probably grew up in a world where his parents, uh, maybe his dad went his dad came, went off to war and came back mm. and was if he's American was was hailed a hero because yeah. he was fighting for something righteous. And I think we forget that disposition. When America went to Vietnam originally, they were seen as the good guys. And that socio-economic change happened in the 60s, mm-hmm. along with a lot of other huge changes that happened, which meant these people came back and they were completely neglected. You you put that on top of that with New Yorker, uh, the New, York, the New Yorker <laughs> persona or the New York attitude of, yeah, I'm looking out for word. my own. Yeah. Um, get out of my way and you I'm take walking that here. with a mentally <laughs> clearly a mentally um suffering person with some forms of d- 
depression and, and elements of narcissism and chronic loneliness, like mm. beseeched level loneliness that, you know, it's the, the need to go sit in a, an adult cinema or find any sort of, of, of comfort in late night television while he just sits there like stewing. It is, it is absolutely. And I, I understand this was a real thing and I, I get it. But that is the most absurd thing to me. These like public porno films, these small seedy theaters that pe- people, all these men just go in and sit together. That's and, what like, it used to be like. It's that. just insane. That's what Tarantino like, worked in. I know. <laughs> like I know it's real. I know that, but it's just so bizarre to me. It's funny. I think it's it's so interesting. It plays and, so perfectly into this. You film, know, though. and the music in this film is 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 amazing. From the 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 composition by. Uh, Oh boy, Bernard Harmon. Yeah, who you know, like we tie back yeah. to the Spielberg thing. Spielberg apparently complimented his score and then took a shot at him for always picking John Williams. So <laughs> I found that's really interesting. <laughs> apparently good, yeah. Spielberg sat in on it. Was like, oh my god, this yep. is an amazing score. And then he was like, yeah, but why do you always use John Williams then? <laughs> Bernard Harmon. And I could totally see that as well. That's apparently he's very. He was a very prickly man. Perfect Hollywood um, exchange right there. But it's like. And, you know, even just that, and then you pick some of the songs in it, like, you know, there's a Jackson Brown song in this, which always makes me, uh, you already, you already, up, you had me at Very Jackson nice. Brown. It's, yeah. And it's one of the most iconic scenes. It's that Late for the Sky song mm. that plays in the middle. And, you know, that's the, for me, that's the boiling pop sequence, that slow push in on the TV screen, slow push in on Travis. Like, yeah. And it's and it's all in De Niro's face acting, mm-hmm. and his body language is just incredible. You you almost forget that's Dirty Grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I didn't forget Zeke. I, <laughs> I didn't forget. <laughs> um, no, but you forget like like he really, particularly his seventies and eighties performances, and. You know, I've only ever managed to get through part of Casino because I just haven't had the time to really sit down and appreciate the full right. film. But De Niro is just so good in those '70s films. Like, and I would love to watch Deer Hunter too. I know that's a you know, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a copula. very. I yeah, I had, I I like Deer Hunter, but it was one I I really that's like hour long acts that film. The first hour is the wedding, second hour. But um, I mean, he's great in, of course, but. Because you still haven't seen Godfather Part Two, haven't you? No. That might be top five greatest performances of all time from De Niro. From because, De Niro, or just from, in general? from De Niro? Okay, but in like he because he had to play, he had to play the Godfather. Yeah, he like, plays a young. Yeah, um, yeah, he played like the prequel version, but it's like it's just the most. I mean, young Marlon Brando. He has to play young Marlon Brando, and he's. Perfect. I don't. I don't care if I just yelled P into my pop no, filter. Right. You know, to be honest, but he is it, it would be really interesting to ever sit down and be like, could you put together the best, the top twenty best male performances from twentieth century films, mm-hmm. like of the twentieth century, and then the best female, best top twenty female performances? And you wouldn't. You you would definitely see De Niro pop up at least twice, probably in that list. I I reckon his Godfather two performance is yeah one of the greatest performances of all time. Yeah, I think purely because of the challenge that he had ahead of him, and he just effortlessly nails that performance. Yeah. Um, and then it, it, you know even in here in Taxi Driver, it's like he he I mean he is he looks like Robert De Niro. Like the, there's something about his look that that really takes you out of that. 
but the way he just he's always just on this edge and you never quite because he has that facade where he you know he's able to swoon Betsy and even knows like which gift to give her with the vinyl and everything but then taking her to a dirty movie and just he can't comprehend why that would upset her to the point where she won't talk to him again it's like th- there's that level of facade but then like authentic confusion on his end where you know, when he goes from one scene to the next where he's, he's either going to assassinate a presidential candidate or these pimps, you don't know which one he's going to go through with. It's just fantastic. It's truly and it's wild, all for his it? performance. It yeah. is. And, he's and, so it's a, and it's a testimony, I think, to how, you know, we were talking about it with Chaplin's camera work, but it's like, obviously, you know, it's Scorsese's direction. He's mm. a very... He's a very explicit director. I know that in these earlier years, he was definitely a bit more loose with his direction. He wasn't like as as militant with what he expected, and he's not sure. on the same level as a as Tarantino or Wes Anderson, where he wants everyone to hit certain yeah. beats. He's definitely a little bit more loose. I mean, we can you get a, a really lot good of look improv at, in these some of these scenes, and, and you get a lot of really good. I mean, you get a real good insight into his direction when you watch Last Waltz because you get to actually see the way he conducts interviews, yep. and he's so like just a dude asking questions like but he's so <laughs> blase about it he's not yeah, professional it seems effortless yeah um but he clearly knows how to tell a really good story um and yeah you're 100 right there definitely feels like that improv i mean it's like the you talking to me thing apparently that's based off what bruce springsteen used to say when he interacted with the crowd and <laughs> springsteen's another prominent singer songwriter of, of the lonely and these these stories of people that came after the war because he has his own personal stories about mm. You know, he wanted to be drafted and he couldn't be drafted and, into Vietnam. And, and it's one of those things, oh, we would have lost this really important songwriter if he'd, he had died in Vietnam. And Yeah. He's such an Americana depiction, so there's clearly those ties there. And like I said, you know, Jackson Brown's such a prominent American singer-songwriter and probably his most prolific album is late for the sky which is like that epitome song which is so i remember the first time i wasn't into jackson brown nearly as much as the first time i watched this film but when i heard that song in that movie i was that that was one of my favorite um soundtrack movie moments ever yeah because it sold so much about the scene you know Mm. when a song sometimes feels like it's tacked in because it's popular or it's Sure. It's a or little it's, too overt yeah. or on the nose yeah. that yeah. you're like, okay, I get what they're trying to do with this song. Or a song that's used a lot in a movie, so it doesn't nearly have the same resonance because you've got about four or five movies you could tie that song to. Yeah, there's very few... Uh, my And this is so off topic, but it's like the ending to Miru's Wedding is like one of the rare examples where it's they're using Abasson. It's like the 50th time they're using Abasson in that film, but it just... It just it's, a, it's a perfect movie soundtrack moment, but it go, goes off repetition. Mm-hmm. Um, and even to this film's score, because I remember when I first saw this, I actually made a, a slant at sort of that that jazzy music. I said, "Oh, it's way too overused." Yeah, I remember saying that, and I'm watching this back. I'm like, "Why on earth would I say that?" It's so perfectly mixed in with like the 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 tension of the drum track that is also so unpredictable, and how that comes into play, and especially how it use, is used in the ending shootout yeah. scene it's arts oh, the soundtrack is fantastic and, i mean we, we we sit here and it's like this film's clearly carried serious resonance i mean last year we're, we're talking about or even a you know a couple of you know last week we're talking about the stranger and, and having a very dangerous person mm. and sort of the in that case it's a police operation to sort of disarm this person and, and that create that menace that Wright creates with his film 
or even the year prior, you know, we're talking about particularly Nipram, where we're watching mm. someone who's clearly mentally ill, who has access to guns, who's going to carry... We know, and obviously those it's are way more tied to, he- to history, so yeah. we have that sickly feeling as an Australian. We talked about that on that episode. But this has the same... I mean, th- this film would have set a precedent for this type of story and how to handle it in that balance of, of sensitivity but still create that tension and lack of lack of control us as an audience member has over the main character because they don't feel like they're adhering to a script. Yeah. They're well, like... <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because it's like this film actually, it kind of did the inverse of Nitram where it's like the, those films and The Stranger, they're based on crimes that have actually happened, people that actually exist that we fear. And this film actually went on to apparently inspire an assassination attempt on Reagan, which I had no idea about until today. It's actually John Hickley Jr. who claims this film was partly the reason that he wanted to go and assassinate the president. And it's based on a lot of the imagery and, and the motives that happened in this film. And it's mm. that almost has its own like eerie effect of like, a film that we just watched, and again, this is the reason I love films so much, is everybody brings their own personality and, and, and history into mm-hmm. the same thing. We're all watching the same collection of photographs being played at that 24 frames a second. I know I made fun of that statement last week. But people watched this film and were inspired to do that. And it's like, we're watching the exact That's same horrifying. thing. That's horrifying. That's horrifying. It's scary. And it's like, you know, if you even take when this film's made in 76, you know, in the last 10 years they'd had a presidential... Um, I had a president assassinated with with Kennedy being mm. assassinated by a man that you know clearly we would have been driven in certain the certain same sort of you know uh, mental illnesses. We can one can only imagine what drives someone to assassinate someone who is a who is a representation of a democratic system, mm. a system that's clearly neglected a character like Travis in his own. Um, sort of warped perception. Sure, yeah. Um, and we could argue, it's interesting, the film positions is that way, is that him just trying to get back at Betsy because she's a, <laughs> working at the office of this presidential, uh, this can- like this candidate yeah, for exactly. election. Is it is it that rudimentary that he just gets dumped so he enacts out being like, oh, I'm going to tear everything that you care about from the very small amount of information he knew about Betsy? Or is it, yep. is it bigger than that? Is it him... Does it derive from a wider political yeah, is um, background? Yeah. Through that, that neglect. And, and the fact that we never really understand Travis as a person mm. leads those questions open. All we know is he goes through this renaissance where he you know, he turns his hair into a mohawk. He becomes like this... <laughs> that screenshot of him smiling and, and sick, fantastic. Sycophantic sort of uh, phoenix from the ashes... Of his own, his own loneliness, his yeah. own, his own. Uh, he finds rejuvenation, and, and it's like that scene when he's looking in the mirror with the, with the guns, and and he's got this weird sort of machismo side. It's amazing that so many people and so many pieces of film literature have been written about this film, mm. and how many all of them tackle completely different topics. Yeah, no, I film. mean, there's so many. I mean, you, I think you really touched on this idea of like, the fact that the film doesn't dwell too much into Travis's real motivation. We kind of have clues based on the way the scenes are edited together and into that. And like mm. you said, does him trying to assassinate this, uh, not a president-elect, but you know, somebody who's in the campaign to become a president-elect, divide from a bad date? 
or being dumped, or you're right, there's something more to it. The film doesn't overtly really explain that, and I think what's so special about this film, what's so scary about this film in a lot of ways, is when you see Travis turn from a passive sort of onlooker, someone who's driving the taxi, Mm. and it's like, I've been watching a lot of, you know, my, my... time off i watch uh uber videos people who drive uber and like I've, the worst of the worst like people you know acting horrific or violent or angry in the back of an uber and it's like i'm always attracted to that but you're right it's like as a someone who drives people around first off we can get into to what extent does travis's job serve to the society at large mm-hmm. and how involved is he in that or is he just a passive participant but g- going from that it's like when he becomes more active and he starts working out, he talks about, I'm going to stop eating junk. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to stop sitting down. My body's a temple. When he and starts collecting all these guns, he gets the 38 snub. And I forget the name of the gun with the huge bloody front end. You, you're scared because you're like, I don't know what this person's going to do. He could yeah. go on a rampage. Because we're getting it's, looks, only only brief looks into his psyche and, mm. And at its core, it, it, it really feels like uh, it's a guy that's spiraling because he lacks no residence in his own life. He lacks no, he lacks no, he lacks any agency mm. or direction. And yep. by that, it's it comes back to the the lifestyle of a taxi driver. This mm. guy that is he, his sole responsibility is to charter people from one position to another as they move through their lives, and he captures glimpses of interactions in the back of the car, but. Really, all he's serving is to forward their life and their journeys, whether that's through their employment or their families or their emotional relationships. And he just lacks any sort of physical or emotional relationships in his mm. life. That's why he doesn't know how to deal with Betsy. It's why the, the closest thing he has to any form of relationship, positive relationship, is with a 12-year-old Yeah, who is, you know, being... Like you said, like being pimped out, and, and and to that point as well, like as a taxi driver, you're you're treated one of two ways. You're either invisible, which is the best case scenario, or you're treated like dirt. You know, you get money thrown in your face, but oh, you know, forget about this. Or you have kids throwing you know rocks and stones and drinks at your car, and it's just you're just like a blip in the lives of the sea of these other people. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is a great segue to get into to Jodie Foster, who. As my mum would call it, the Jodie Foster film. It's <laughs> a joke that's I made. Absolutely off brilliant. The air was that no. off the air? That was. I think that was, was. You're right. You didn't. You didn't. I say told that. you that. So I. I told my mum. Oh, two hundred, and she's like, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, "Oh, we're doing Taxi Driver," and she goes, "Oh, it's just a Jodie Foster film," <laughs> and I. Was, I laughed fantastic. a lot because I, I turned around and went, that's "Of all movie. of the people you could bring up in this film." You know, we've brought him up, you know, Chaplin, Schrader, Scorsese, De Niro, De Niro. You know, Scorsese Harvey Keitel even. Harvey, like, yeah, even yeah. Keitel. And it's like, but you bring up the 12-year-old. Now, admittedly, she's in a very memorable role and she gives a very good performance. But this is a 12-year-old Jodie Foster. I mean, the fact of the matter is, and I, I was shocked because my assumption was, like, oh, this would be, this probably was a breakout film. You know, it's like Natalie it Portman in Leon. But it's like she was doing commercials since she was three years old. And this was like maybe her fifth or sixth film. Her, really? Uh, yeah. Obviously, this is like her big. I mean, she did a few this year, and then that that's part of her big break. And then she obviously got nominated for an Oscar, which is mind-boggling that yeah. this film even had that. Re- I mean, this won the Palme d'Or. 
Yeah. This film won the Palm d'Or, damn it. Like, this this wasn't some little indie film that snuck in the round and gained this cult and following. From the beginning, this was a very talked about movie. And I, I mean, I love Jodie Foster. Like, you don't go to our Silence of the Lambs episode. Oh, yeah. No. Outright say she's in my top five favorite actresses of all time, without even a question. Mm. It's in my head. She would always be in my top five. It's a shame in recent years, I can't think of anything that I really... But her Clarice was enough for me to be like, yeah, no, <laughs> I can't beat... I can't top how good that film is at, at, at portraying her, how good her acting is in that, yeah. what she does with her. And then you watch this film, and you're like, oh, well, it wasn't from nowhere, was it? This this actress didn't come from nowhere. I mean, she's fantastic. No, I mean, she's, she's, she's at 12 years old, she's Such working with Scorsese. mentally challenging <laughs> film for a 12-year-old to be in. I mean, you're... You're in this, you know, was this, you're in this child prostitute industry, which is like a whole other heap of just don't even go near that. I mean, that's that's so sleazy, and it really epitomizes how mm. dark this film is. And probably for that alone, maybe it does warrant that R rating. That we were yeah, thinking. that's true. Again, um, it's just like that seedy, not even undertone, just like right in your face, a seedy atmosphere. I mean, you're right. More than the violence, that might actually be what where it gets its grade from because it's like it is so uncomfortable to watch especially when when we first meet her mm. she's desperate to get in the taxi and to get away and she's obviously dragged out but then by the time that travis goes upstairs with her and there's this whole like system where they got to talk to the guy and arrange the payment and they talk to the, the guy at the door and they pay him for the room and there's a whole system there and it's also blasé and natural mm. and it's like you know they keep calling him a cop but it, there's never actually any real danger there of him beating him up or, you know, killing Travis, so to speak. But once they get up there, um, Iris is just so, I can't use that terminology, but like so in this role of, you know, she's going to look after Travis or, you know, your 15 minutes is not a long time and just constantly rejecting his uh, pleads to like stop what you're doing. Like, don't you want to leave? And I think at this point in the film, we're so uncertain about Travis's, mindset of like all this workout ethic the the guns and like this violent temperament at this point has he killed the shop robber i think he ha- i think mm. he has already yeah um which you know you could argue is okay well he's defending the clerk and the guy's committing a crime and even though he killed him so seamlessly but it's at this point you're like oh he's actually like you i feel like and i remember watching it today i was like I, if this was at the start of the film before Travis had started going through this journey, very subtle journey about this film, would he have actually slept with Iris at the start of the film or in the wake of him getting dumped by Betsy? No, because no. I think at its core, the the purpose of unno- like unknowing, he almost doesn't... I feel like Travis doesn't even really know what he's going to do next. Sure. And that's where I talk to that lack of agency thing. And I do think there is a moralistic side to him um, that at the end of the day, at his very core, despite how warped his reality has become, mm. there was always the right thing. I, I never ever got the implication whenever he was interacting with Iris. It was most of the time it was despondency and wanting not wanting to help. Right. But there was never that that side to it. Um, and you, maybe, you know what? May- In defense of your argument as well, and I only noticed this this time around. The the is it like a twenty? The twenty that's thrown in the taxi when he's oh just you know just ignore this, pretend it never happened. He holds on to that twenty, 
And when he's meeting with the other taxi dudes, he actively hides that note away. He doesn't want to use that note until he's able to give it back to the door guy at that prostitution mm-hmm. ring. So to your point, the whole film, he's always sort of avoiding the responsibility of holding on to this bill yeah. and ignoring the seediness of what's going on in the background of New York. So I actually, I think I'm with you on that. Yeah, I, I think, yeah. I'm not going to say Travis Bickle is a, is a good person. <laughs> no? <laughs> but I but I think what this is trying to show us is society has a, you have a line. Yeah. And, and what that is to him in his warped reality is that chance to be a hero in mm. a sense. Yes. And it's why he kills the robber with no, like no inkling. It's a re- yeah. reactionary based thing. And. I think he wants to be remembered. It comes back to that chronic loneliness that he mm. clearly suffers. It's about being remembered. And at first we, we think that remembrance is going to come through the form of romantic connection with Betsy, that he's going to find a partner that understands him. But he clearly doesn't know how to convey intimacy correctly. Yep. That's why he takes her to a important, uh, you know, this, this, uh, this adult, adult theatre. And yep. it's such a... and But... There's always that feeling there where, you know, he does the the reason he wants to go kill the candidate to me, or at least where it sits with me, is, yeah, it's that that sort of infamy is better than never being remembered at all. Right. And and he obviously opts to take a a path of of fame, or at least some form of fame or recognition by being the the hero of his own story, which is the in his own head, I think that his own Ment- he is a mentally ill person. Mm. He thinks he's the hero of the story, and that's at its core the yeah. whole time. And it's just the way he goes about that. It's the woo. It's in the earlier days. It's the you know the woo. And I think that's what the ending, the ambiguous ending, really suggests it. Where he's this charismatic taxi driver that finally gets his real golden opportunity. That he's hailed this hero. That's remembered forever, and actually, I think all the paper clippings, the letters from the parents, who you know, when when he's talking to Iris at the like a I guess like a cafe or like a breakfast joint, she's saying like the relationship between her and her parents is severed, but then now there's these clippings from the parents thanking him for what he's done. He's driving um, Betsy, and he's like the charismatic hero, a taxi driver that gives her the free lifts, and it. Yeah, I think you can make an argument that it, that is like 100% fantasy at that point. Mm-hmm. This whole hero and, stage of his life. And it's one of those things where it's like, uh, you know, you look at this and you look at King of the Comedy and it, uh, these disillusioned characters that are chronically lonely and, and really don't know, lack any sort of actual agency in their life and are often holding everyone else accountable mm. for their own personal neglect, their personal demons. Yeah which is what Travis does for the whole duration of the film. He never thinks he's doing something wrong. Right. Ever. Like, even when he actively makes mistakes with Betsy or wanting to, uh, like, you know, he be- accrues these guns. The guns are, the, like, just the vessel for him finding that masculinity side back. Mm. Finding that sort of self-confidence in, in a really yeah. messed up way. But even to your point with that, it's like, it, it's either that or he doesn't understand why and how he's done anything wrong. Yeah. And it's either this re- rejection of the idea or there's that sense of immaturity because he's 26. But you could you could argue that he probably lost a, a portion of his life to Vietnam. Mm. So I, And again, a lot of that is all unspoken. It's just sort of in the performance 
and the writing, the writing of, of his character and how he responds to situations. Mm. So I think the film, like you said, when people write essays on this film and on so many different aspects of it, I think that's where it derives from because it's so, you know, we talk about films like, um, oh, how am I forgetting the Scarlett Johansson one? Under the Skin. Mm. Films like that, and even Knit Ram to a lesser extent, films that just sort of speak, they're out there and they they speak for themselves by not speaking at all and you, you have to bring a lot of your own interpretation to the film. Um, so you know, even like I'm thinking of ending things like a film that, that is that abstract mm. but it really it, it kind of forces you to make all these connections and fill in all the dots and I think this film does just the right amount of them Yeah. whereas like who is Travis Bickle and I think every time you watch this film you're going to get a slightly different answer so I really loneliness appreciate that. is a vessel for crazy so is the ending complete fantasy? Is there an element of truth to it? To be honest, you know, if we take this film in isolation, I, I think even even then, if mm-hmm. I'm only watching this in, I mean, 1976, and I've yep. gotten watched Taxi Driver. And, and you got a mullet. Can I way just, too early for the mullet. Yeah, it was way too early for the mullet. <laughs> but can I just say, if you went and saw this movie in the cinema, this would be the worst date movie to ever take someone <laughs> on. See, Lizzie, you literally suggested I know. <laughs> last week. I did. You said we should double date to the taxi I, driver look, screening. I want to do a double date, but... Oh, this, this is the last a, film I'll show Kirsty. Glass, on, glass <laughs> Onion might have to do. Um, <laughs> see how they run would have been a good one to do. Good three out of... That would have been good. Three out of five film. That would have been good. Yeah, good yeah. six out of ten. Um, but yeah, no. <laughs> it was... That's funny. Yeah, I think I forgot how grotty this film is. Grotty's a, a fair, no. I think yeah, knowing, knowing as someone it. who's seen a couple of Schrader films too, from a writing point of view, yeah, he does go for the surrealistic ending. Um, mm. He does it in First Reformed, off the top of my top of my head. All right, and, um, and don't don't spoil it because I still haven't seen First Reformed. Even Raging Bull. Yes, that's a good example as well. Where he's in the cell, and oh, and Card Counter, same thing. I haven't seen which Card I Counter either. About. But, um, yeah, well, 100% would recommend both of those. I know this is a Scorsese. We have any... You know what? This is probably the least Director's Corner, Director's Corner we've ever done because we've just talked oh, about p- the movie off. Potentially. I think we. it's funny because we sort of talked about where this film really doesn't fit into so many of his other categories. you got, like, Raging Except Bull. King of... Oh. I think Raging Bull, King of Comedy, and this film sort of all fit into their own sort of character studies. Whereas what, like Mean Street, Goodfellas, Casino, they fit all together. Much more into like the mafia crime, organised crime genre. And you've got a lot of his um, more religious-based films, especially films like Silence. I guess you've got like Shutter Island. That that People always joke about that being like a very odd film for Scorsese to make. It actually is though. It feels like such a Nolan film. Well, that, that's always the joke, is that he actually, Nolan actually directed Shutter Island and then... And then Scorsese directed uh, Insomnia. Ah, <laughs> uh, see, I could buy that. That's actually. a great. Yeah, that's I, a very good. I um, love that theory. <laughs> that's a good flip. Yeah, there's enough in Insomnia to know it's a Nolan, though. Fair enough. Like an whereas, early, early in whereas Nolan I film. cannot. I'm trying to think with Shutter Island where um the Scorsese starts because it feels like such a Nolan film. I feel like <laughs> I feel like with Scorsese though. I feel like in that sort of um, Audis area era where you get into like the Aviator and maybe not so much the Departed. I mean, that's another that's one another that's one sort of like organized crime. So good, the Departed. That's though. a great film. I've only seen it the one time. Yeah, same at, at uni. And I always forget it because it's like so good though. Like 
I mean, that's probably one of my favorite Matt Damon performances mm. in that film. Yeah. Oh, it's a great film. It's really? just so much fun. It's fun, but it has that crime element of the Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, that Leo DiCaprio, have... like, shock when he just gets <laughs> yeeted. You're like, what? I know, it's so surprising. I think, but... although, like, the more entertaining, the Wolf of Wall Street, like, the DiCaprio era is very weird with Scorsese. Cause yeah. It's a, it's a bit different. Because even like A.B. Ever and Gangs in New York, like it sort of goes into this, and even Hugo, and even Hugo. Like these are all films, sort of the mid to late orties, where Scorsese starts playing a little bit more with like a more phonetic animated camera. And he's, he's utilizing special effects just a mm. little bit more. And I think that's where those films, and especially Shutter Island, where I figured the imagine the uh, the scene where Leonardo is holding onto his wife and she's sort of like turning to dust around him, like those ethereal scenes. I think of Scorsese in that period where he, he makes that a year before he makes Hugo. I tell you, my what is because it's two hundred, so it's a special episode. Yes. What's your favorite Scorsese film? Or even okay, more accurately, maybe what's your what's the underrated Scorsese film? You think the film that doesn't get as nearly as much recognition when we when we say Scorsese because this film I like the Aviator a lot. I'm not gonna. That's not my answer. Okay, and I want to give Silence a shout out because that's a film that really leans heavily into the on the Christian side of his of his direction. And don't don't forget as well, films like Mean Street sort of merge those two, merge the organized crime and the and the Christianity thing into sort of one uh, unified blob. And I think that's really fascinating, the fact that he could never quite retain the the symmetry between those two film themes in future films. Mm. He might have, and I've just not seen it. I haven't seen other films like The Passion of the Christ or um or Last Last Temptation of Christ, my apologies. Mm. After Hours is one I haven't seen as well. Uh, but I will give Silence a shout, even though I think it's boring as batshit. It's an incredibly <laughs> well-made film. Which is, is such an odd combination, but I I have to give it a shout out. Now, we're we're remembering a lot of Scorsese films, mm-hmm. and I've seen almost, I've seen at least I've got here about seventeen. A shout out as well to New York Stories. We watched his forty minute short film as part of that feature in class from memory. Mm. But looking at this other stuff, um. I mean, Goodfellas is fantastic, of course. I feel that's a bit of an obvious one. Raging Bull is fantastic. The Color of Money for me. I haven't seen it. It's one of the most underrated, underappreciated, I reckon, Scorsese films. The film that Mm. I just was like, oh, watch it. One of my favorite Tom Cruise performances. Yeah. Color of Money. He plays. He pretty much plays exactly what becomes the Tom Cruise archetype: the cocky, arrogant hothead character mm. which we see in which is most famous for in Top Gun yeah but I think well this film came before Top Gun so I reckon <laughs> Scorsese tapped into what was going to be the potential of Tom Cruise before it actually really hit right gotcha. it's also a great Paul Newman film so it's like and it's like such a nice unique film I've never seen Hugo um, Hugo's great I mean it, like I said it really leans into that sort of uh Tintin-esque floating camera and there is a lot of visual effects but but the love for cinema that's represented in Hugo and like the fantasy element the fact that it's very child friendly which is not a lot of Scorsese films you can say the same for um, I I love Hugo I think it's absolutely wonderful I would put that in like top three not underappreciated but you know 
the non-obvious Scorsese. If you put like you know Goodfellas and Taxi Driver in a list of like the obvious films that you have to watch from Scorsese, the three I would counter that with. Hugo would definitely be in there. I have a soft spot for the Aviator. I really do. I know. Again, like do you not the care? the plane crash in Aviator is so silly. Again, he's VFX experimental age. Um, and I guess The Departed as well. I want to give a shout out to Cape Fear. I do love the original Cape Fear, and I, I, I think, I mean. Is it Max Caddy? That's the name of the character. Yeah, Max Caddy, Robert De Niro portrays. It's a hard performance to follow up with, but I think he does a very good job in that. Um, I just think that's a very special relationship as well, Martin Scorsese and and De Niro. Mm. I just think that... I mean, you got the Godfather Part 2 performance, so it's like we've cemented De Niro at this point, but... Their collaboration. I mean, even in Mean Streets, you can see it. It's like, yeah, these two are going to go far together. They're going to have a long, prosperous relationship, working relationship. So, if I had to point to three films, it would be Hugo, Aviator, um, and you know what, and King of Comedy. I I think we sort of look, I think we look over it because we did it so early on the show, mm-hmm. and we looked at it, but, but most people don't know the King of Comedy. It was really hard for me to find a DVD back in the day. It's very fair. So those would be my three. Uh, have you picked one or two that you're going to... Oh, I can do three. I, I so you're going to do the Colour of Money. Colour of Money, I think, is... Well, like I said, I think you're hitting some pr- really good... on the Starting to get to that going into the final descent of Newman's career. Mm. But, like, Newman's just dynamite. And yeah. he plays that role of that mentor so well and and that charismatic mentor and obviously capitalizing on the on the tom cruise early young man performance yeah i think the last waltz i don't think it gets it's one of those things that i can sit here and go it's a fantastic music documentary that i adore and i've watched over and over and over again but it's one of those things that where most people go who and then they go who are the band and i'm like the band But you watch that and you think from a musical documentary point of view, I think that's the best there will ever be. There mm. will be never anything that good ever again. Coverage point of view is insane for 1976. It's yeah, the amount insane. of cameras I had on that performance. Yeah. The the way to interweave a story of a band's career into their final show. I've seen farewell shows from a lot of my favourite bands. No one's done it that good ever. Mm. Um and then just that moment, like I said, in, you know, on the episode, that moment in rock and roll history where you've got the convergence of some of the most prominent artists, rock and roll artists of the 60s, all meeting in one night. And I mean, it's 1976, but a lot of them were prominent in the early, early late 60s and a bit of early 70s. Like, that was their decade of dominance, mm. you know. And at this time, the, the torch is being passed to the to the Springsteens and we're about to get into the Bowie era and, and, and that sort of, and the, and the queen era. And, um, I think that that's so huge for people to watch and just Marvel, that these were some of the best singer songwriters of a generation and they just all meet for one night. And then, Oh man, I gotta say probably third one. If we're talking about, I'm going to give it some love. I'm going to give Wolf of Wall Street some love. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's, <laughs> It's, it's fantastic. It's so good. Like, and it's one of those 
films that I hate talking about sometimes because it's like it's obviously a more recent Scorsese. And it's, I mean, it's it's nearly ten years it's old. 20, it's twenty fourteen. So this is, you got to put yourself in the mindset of a Jake and Zeke from ten years ago. We're in year eleven. <laughs> the and Jake and Zeke. Let's be real. It's a film that the adolescent, the young adolescent male, in particular, would just love. Um, which, to be honest, a lot of Scorsese films, he is a very, I would say, very masculine dominated director. He loves commenting and exploring mm-hmm. masculine psyche. He's not a very favourable... Like, he doesn't really look too much to the, the female psyche. Or sure. The female. And some of his films are universal. Some of them, definitely not. Um, sure. We would... Taxi Driver is not a date movie. No. We're not going to enforce our girlfriends and, what Taxi And to be honest, <laughs> it's like, I don't think every director needs to be universal or needs to... They can explicitly target one gender... And do that gender really well. I mean, we think Greta Gerwig's a fantastic mm. director for the female gender. Um, she's outwardly made multiple really good films that look at that psyche and do really good things with it. And I think it's it does, you know, and then it works both ways. I mean, Catherine Bigelow's really good at looking at the male sort of the male ego mm. in her only way, which is fantastic. You know, it's crazy. Her films, her most prominent and successful films, all just look at masculine dominance in their yeah. cinema, which is so remarkable and interesting. Um, I think at the end of the day with Wolf of Wall Street is it's a crime film where you have fun and it's boys being boys. And I think Scorsese, he, he looks at a lot of these characters and, yeah, I can't think of a single film he's directed that has like a female lead for example looks into that psyche but i think with the for wall street i think the the reason we almost feel a little guilty for talking about how much we love that film is because it's so much more fun with the crime and sort of the the sexist nature of the characters that it's looking into and i would also argue the the, the characters are the they're deplorable Mm. like he does not He does not celebrate that aspect. You are not really supposed to like them that much. You can laugh at their absurdity, sure, but you know Jordan Belford is not depicted in a positive light at all. No, like, but it, and it, he's not even given the, like you know ironically he's played by Leo, but he's not given the Great Gatsby treatment as this rich person. You know, off the bat he's immediately like I'm just taking a lot of drugs and doing illegal stuff. And sure, we find that entertaining and engaging to watch, but there is no point that you really like him. He's except in the earlier, but before he gets corrupted in mm, the opening sure. twenty minutes, there is uh, a transformation arc to his yeah, character. Yeah, happens downfall in about, happens in about forty minutes. It's over <laughs> in about forty. For, for, for I do a think the one by one. I do. Th- I was going to say. I do think Wolf Wall Street's too long. Oh look! I mean, at the end of the day, it's so like if if you just start watching it, you end up watching two hours. Yeah, like, it's, it it's goes true. by, and you just you're like, "Oh crap, I've lost it." So like, it's paced really well, and it's just so engaging, and fun. But I understand the guilt for having fun because of the the nature. And it's like you know something like Taxi Driver, and it is all seedy and disgusting, but it it plays to that strength. You're not meant to have fun watching their film, and the same for something like The Irishman, where you're sort of watching it from this distance of. You know these age characters looking back and with all this regret. Um, so it really, I feel like the Wolf of Wall Street really is his only film that is almost shamelessly having, or unashamedly having fun 
with these uh, horrible characters, but mm. I can't deny how fun and entertaining the film is. Yeah. So I understand the guilty pleasure aspect to it, but at the end of the day, I know people in their 70s that it's like, this is my favourite film of all time. They love watching Leo try and open the damn Lamborghini door. It's, <laughs> it's great. It is great. It, yeah. So, Jake, then we'll come back. We'll bring it home. Yep. What is your highlight scene for Taxi Driver? Um, oh, this is tricky. I love... There's a few little moments in there I love. There's one when it's around it's around the same scene when he's doing the, you know, you talking to me to the mirror. But there's a point where he's like almost... It's almost like he's practicing his monologue. Mm-hmm. Because almost as if there's like a glitch in the edit, the visual and the audio like cut. There's a jarring cut and it almost like he's turning to the camera, then it cuts and he does like take two of the turn and his monologue restarts. And it's just like this subtle little thing of like, oh my God, he's like rehearsing this like big speech. And I don't know if it's an actual error with the editing in the film that's just like stuck for these years, but that's a great moment. I really love, I love the scene where he's like with the, the Andy, the gun dealer, and they're picking their guns, and I especially love that, of course, it's Breaking Bad is homaging this scene, not the other way around, of course, many, many years later. But the fact that he literally buys a thirty-eight snub, the exact same gun that Walt buys in his arms dealership that's also in a hotel with an arms dealer. The difference is this hotel's a lot nicer looking. <laughs> There's a nice, like, river view out the window. So that's like a weird, interesting juxtaposition between the dirty streets in New York and the, the nice, clean hotel he's buying these illegal firearms in. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of there's a lot of great little moments. There's a nice little character moment as well where it's pretty early when he meets up with the other cabbies, so to speak, mm-hmm. and they ask, "Oh, what's up with you?" Like talking to Travis, and he can't think of anything to say except repeat the news that he heard on the radio about someone getting their ear cut off. I thought that was a great little nod right there. It's the fact that he doesn't really have... That social disconnect, yeah. Yeah, there's nothing to talk about for him. It's Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of little moments like that that I love. There's a great shot. I don't want to steal any of your moments. When he's on the phone trying to win back Betsy, and as he's, like, you know, begging and begging and trying to win her over, the camera just sort of, you know, dollies over to the end of the hallway... And it's like the rest of the conversation is happening off screen. And it's like, there's just something about that shot that's so interesting that almost conveys like this senselessness in him trying to win her over of like, let's mm. just move on already. A lot of great little moments in this film like that. But what about, what about you? What's your what's your highlight scene? I'm, I'm going to go with the Jackson Brown, wait for this guy. Yeah. Sequence. <laughs> I think, like I said, you can't say, when I say it, it's one of my favorite um, soundtrack moments in a film. It's, yeah. It really is just so good. And, you know, retrospectively, you go a couple of years, you know, two years after this, The Last Waltz comes out and you see what he does with storytelling with the songs of the band yep. into their, their story and their history. And then even just like the moments when they go down and up and the way that they, he somehow manages to interwo- interweave a, a concert, a live concert into a story it doesn't surprise me he was this good at soundtracks. And we, we actually go on to see multiple really good, like, original soundtrack moments in, in things like The Irishman. Or, I mean, we talked about the Goodfellas homage, mm. where it's like, you know, this... That, that, oh, man, every time you hear that, like, opening piano ballad. Even in Wolf of Wall Street, there's some great soundtrack moments in that. So it's it's 
he actually isn't someone who go tends to actually he tends to actually do more composing based stuff. Like he doesn't do a lot of like he's not like a Tarantino. He doesn't like, take source music too often. Yeah, he doesn't take source music too often, which I find really interesting. He often gets a composer, and you know, obviously source you know with with certain things, which makes it so rare because he only does it I think once or twice in this film. That might be the only time I remember, and it's like so interesting that the rest of it is just a composed soundtrack so he clearly for me what he's trying to say with all his films when he does actually use a source song is sometimes the source song that hits our emotional beat in real life Mm. hits at the right moment and i've heard jokes it's like oh jackson brown would never be on a late night music tv sort of sequence and it's very, but it's that perceptile thing where it's like we don't know what Travis is actually hearing. Maybe this is just the song in his head that's mm. playing. Um, How much of this world is diegetic or non-diegetic? Yeah, and it's and it's such an interesting song because the song uh, follows just him getting dumped by Betsy or or the, you know they stop dating and it's that song about like f- like loneliness and being close to the end is the words in the song, but it's. It's technically implying the end of a relationship, but maybe it's maybe in this particular context is it implying the end of Travis's relationship with reality mm. in the sense that because we then see the spiral, he goes and buys the snub. He he reinvents himself completely to be yeah. this like this almost comic book character by the end of the film, where he's you know in his military outfit with a mohawk like he looks like something out of the watchman like <laughs> it's quite interesting but but what is interesting as well caricature. is like this the scene when he approaches the other cabbie and sort of almost lets out where he, he's i got a lot of bad thoughts in my head that that speech but basically asking like what do i do i've got like this this pent-up not rage, but like there's a pent up feeling in me, and the cabbie basically says, "Oh, just go out and get laid and live on for your life. Like, don't worry. But you know, there's there's no point in dealing with these issues. Don't bother making a difference, which is ultimately what he does by killing these pimps and these prostitutes um, at the end of the film. But that all comes out after the scene where Scorsese makes his cameo, mm-hmm. one of two cameos. There's there's a shot where he just barely sneaks. I think I sent you the video. Mm-hmm. He actually has a, a cameo when we the first shot where we meet Betsy, but the more famous one in the car where he's talking about you know his wife up in the which that's another great scene because you get the POV as he's like scanning the building. It feels like a video game because he's like, mm-hmm. "What are you an idiot? You can't find it!" And it's like, you got to move the analog to find the correct window. <laughs> but it's like that scene is what prompts him to search for a gun and to search for a meaning and a cause to do something. Mm-hmm. So it's like all of these external factors that either create the person that he's becoming or again like you said it's a warped reality and he's almost imagining a lot of these things happening and it's almost the motivation to make himself yeah, this way and i mean you know if we take the the contemporary sort of films that have sort of carbon copied the you know we take phillips as joker it's yep. how much does it be when do when is the point when it becomes fiction like in mm. that story, we don't actually know if he actually gets on the show and kills whatever the talk, whatever De Niro's talk show. Host. Oh, Murray, Murray. Murray. Yeah, <laughs> you know, God, I've only seen that movie once. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Only time I've seen it a few times. I mean, I I think that's well, that film's a bit more overt with what's real and what's not because the whole arc he has with the girl that he's supposedly dating and seeing, the film goes out of its way to show that that was all in his head. 
and he imagined that and then there is that ambiguity of you know the scene after he confronts her and you realize like they don't actually know each other or she doesn't know him he's in he, he's laughing in his apartment you hear an ambulance going by and it's like that's how vague it can get whether he actually killed her or not but otherwise it is pretty open about this is real yeah this is imaginary and and this film blurs that line in a far more interesting way i feel like yeah anyway it, yeah, it's- <laughs> Taxi Driver is currently on SBS On Demand. So what a, what a time for you to go it watch free. it for free. The Jodie Foster film. <laughs> or Netflix or Paramount Plus. Or on this Blu-ray, which I teased earlier, has an interactive script-to-screen mode. You can watch the entire film with the scripts on the bottom of the screen. And you can see how much of the dialogue was improvised, especially like between all the cabbies. Quite a lot. It is shocking. He's such a... And I kind of appreciate it, too. Oh, whatever feels natural. I appreciate it as well. Well, speaking of natural, I'm going to naturally ask you, Jake, what's new to cinemas and streaming (laughs) platforms this week? Um, Like I said earlier, See How They Run comes to Disney+, Plus, as well as the long-awaited Amy Adams sequel, The Dis, Enchanted. Did you see Enchanted many, many years ago when it came out? Is that the one where she... Is from an, a Disney cartoon, goes and then to the real world. In the real world, she comes out of like a, a and drainage. It's, um, what's his name? Uh, the dude from Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> Patrick Dempsey. Yeah, I think that's probably correct. Yeah, no, it's a sequel to that. And I saw the, you know what? I saw the trailer. Doesn't look bad. Doesn't look bad. I have a younger sister, so of course I saw the original in the theater, but um, they're toying with the idea that you know she makes a wish for it to be more like the fantasy world that she came from. But by laws of nature, she's a, a, a stepmother. Mm-hmm. She ends up becoming the evil one. I'm like, that's a nice little Ooh. twist. And the trailer looks kind of fun and epic and there's a bit of budget. I'm a, I <laughs> might watch this league. You're going to watch it? I might watch it. It's 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 going to happen. Coming to Stan, you've got the local film How to Please a Woman, which I managed to dodge this whole time, so I need to sit down and watch nice. it. Many friends of the show have worked on it in some capacity. Coming to Netflix, you have Florence Pugh's The Wonder, which uh, has been playing in cinemas recently, but now drops to Netflix. You've got Struts, which is Jonah Hill's documentary about his therapist. Hearing some quite interesting things about that. Hmm. So I, I don't know to what reflective mode he's going to, to use. Full Bo Burnham. But potentially, potentially. <laughs> and the Zeke, an all-new Teletubby series. Oh. Exclusively for Netflix. You gonna watch it? No. No. Ugh. Oh. You're such a Scrooge, Zeke. <laughs> Sorry, bud. Speaking of which, Apple TV Plus, <laughs> we see Spirited, a twisted retelling of the classic Charles Dickens Christmas Carol story with Ryan Reynolds as the rich grump and Will Ferrell as the ghost of Christmas present. God. Look at me go. Look at me go with that segue, Zeke. This looks terrible. You remember how we were talking a couple of weeks ago about how we're getting Ryan Reynolds fatigue? We're well, what, you know what would add to the Ryan Reynolds fatigue? <laughs> having Will Ferrell. Having Will Ferrell <laughs> in the same movie. <laughs> I always, you I know can't what? say that that appeals to me, think, no. I used to say, oh, I didn't get Jim, Jim Carrey comedy at the height of Jim Carrey career. Jim Carrey is ten times the comedian Will Ferrell is. Mm. Like, But he found it funny or die, Zeke. He's, he's funny. He's just, and the funny thing is, he's so straight man in real life mm. that whenever he does his comedy, and I'm I I do not like Step Brothers. Like I've really? never cared for Step Brothers. Yeah. Oh. Silly. There's so many better. Did you put the, your balls on my drop? Sorry, Vince Vaughn was ten times funnier than Will Ferrell. 
in that Ortiz battle. Like wedding crashes That's and dodgeball, so much better. Even Ben Stiller, I found. But funny. like, yeah, Vince Vaughn isn't overly funny in Dodgeball. He's a straight man to Ben Stiller being hilarious in that film. Yeah, but that's like kind of why Vince Vaughn's so great. Oh, Wedding Crashes is amazing, but that's. A, I don't remember much of Wedding Crashes. I need great. to. Re- I need to rewatch it. Great. Vaughn but then, to be fair, anyway. Isla Fisher really steals um, Wedding Crashes because she's so nuts. But hmm. um, Perth local, <laughs> Isla Fisher. Yeah, yeah, fair, <laughs> fair enough. Coming to Paramount Plus, you have Sonic the Hedgehog two, which actually also comes to bin. So if you've got either of those uh, platforms, you can mm. watch it. And a Tyler Sheridan series, which he created called uh, Tuz Tulsa King, T U L S A Tulsa Tulsa King, which sees Sylvester Stallone as a mafia capo. So yeah, it's a whole new series uh, created and written by Tyler Sheridan. Are you excited for that? I mean, I do like me some Tyler Sheridan. I'm yeah. still wishing I was dead from those who wish it. <laughs> And the last one, yeah. No, yes. Fair enough, fair yeah. enough. He's a great writer. He is. Can't take it he away is. from him. Sure, it is. yeah. I mean, hella high water. Check that yeah, episode exactly. out. That was great. That was our first one back from COVID. Yeah. It was a while ago. And coming to cinemas, we have The Menu, which sees Anya Taylor-Joy and Nicholas Holt as a couple travel to a remote island to eat an exclusive restaurant where the chef, played by Ralph Fiennes, prepares a lavish, deadly menu. This is the Cannibal Island one, isn't it? I, I Probably. Has this been getting good ratings? I actually don't know. I'm, I'm seeing so much press for it, obviously because of Anya Taylor-Joy, but I actually have no idea what people think of it. Let's have a look. Yeah. It's you know what we should do for the next 100 episodes? We should try and campaign to get our WA local celebrities on here, like mm. Sasha Baron Cohen. He's <laughs> 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 got 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. So, okay. And so 7.5 IMDb, so like a nice... See, I just I can't trust those metrics though. All right, I'll get I'll get up, <laughs> get up, letterbox. Yeah, exactly. letterbox and... <laughs> Do you I reckon we'll? You know, mm-hmm. that's all for this week, isn't it? No, there's a couple oh, more. Sorry, a couple more. Go for that's it. All right. Oh, okay. Yeah. You you find that score? I'm going to talk about she said, which looks into the New York Times reporters that broke the story that helped launch the Me Too movement and take down Harvey Weinstein. I would. I am. I what am I seeing this? Miss Spotlight-esque sort of thing. It's a lot more recent in mm. terms of its material, so we shall see. Millie Lies Low sees an anxiety-written, the anxiety-written protagonist, based on the name, Millie, uh, on her way to Wellington, from Wellington to New York, for an internship at a prestigious architecture firm when a moment of panic caused her to miss her flight. You know, that kind of just sounds like a prequel to 500 Days of Summer. Mm. Her name should be Autumn, and it's the wrong city. It's not New York, but... Still, I'm going to claim it. It's the 100 Days Before Autumn, the prequel. And finally, coming uh, to sorry, coming well, coming to cinemas, playing at cinemas to continue the Scorsese celebration. It might actually be on his... Oh, no, I apologize. It's on your birthday, Zeke, I believe. The Raging Bull screening at Palace. Oh, can you so, believe it? Uh, we missed the taxi drive one last night. Yes. Um, I put my hand... I had a drone gig that I couldn't get out of, so... Brag about it. <laughs> I wouldn't brag about it. <laughs> that, that was some decent shots. 3.7 for the menu on. Oh, that's not bad. That's so pretty not, good. Not terrible. It's about where The Stranger was sitting. 3.7. That's pretty good. I think it's up to 3.8 now, The Stranger. That's wow. Okay. People really like it. Spider. Fair all backlash. Spider. Which, to be fair, I really liked it. No, no, that's fair yeah. enough. That's fair enough. Hey. It's... I'll, uh, 
It's good. I will get a cute Listen. misfortune done in the next week. Oh, yeah. I, I actually quite preferred that film. I think it's great. There you go. But that's it. That's what's coming to cinemas and streaming in the next week. I had to pose this, and I didn't do it while we had our taxi driver conversation yet. But before we move into what we're watching next week, mm-hmm. speaking of remakes. <laughs> oh, okay. Would we ever see a taxi driver remake? That's not called The Joker? Um, it would be impossible to do in this day and age. Mm. I'm surprised this film hasn't got the Fight Club, uh, you know, uh, cancelled. La- yeah, like la- lash back. What? What the? What's the word I'm looking for? Lash back. Well, no, it's lash back. Yeah. Lash back. That's a thing. Backlash. Backlash. Oh my god. <laughs> Lash back. Why are we doing? We can't. We don't know words, Zeke. But um, I feel like it. I'm shocked that this film hasn't got that Fight Club backlash. Um, but it. I feel like it would if if anyone tried to sort of read it. I mean, look at the controversy Joker caused from nothing. True. And well, that was that was a DC society. Film. Society. Society's a cesspool. Is it Zeke? I almost called you Zet. Well, you get what you deserve, Jake. Now, speaking of which, <laughs> De Niro does. It's time for us to. It's time for us to move into our film of the week next week. Next week on the show? Next mm. week on the show, what are we watching? <laughs> <laughs> 200 episodes! Well, uh, 200 episodes! Hey! Uh, Alright, to, to kick off the, uh, I guess, the next 100, Zeke, mm-hmm. um, we're going to be looking at a film. Uh, we're going to look at the 2022 version, of course. I'm going to be watching the original as well. You've seen the original already. Looking at All Quiet on the Western Front. War breaks out in Germany in 1914. Paul Baumer and his classmates quickly enlist in the army to serve their fatherland, but once on the Western Front, they discover the soul-destroying horror of World War One. Zeke, you quite liked the original oh, 1930 film. Yeah. It was fantastic. It was um, one of those films that you just didn't expect you were going to like. As, as someone who I was a big fan of cinema, and we have gone through multiple decade retrospectives now, mm. Um, which I love that we do that. It's probably my favorite time of the year when we do that is 10 weeks. Aww. Well, I just like it because it forces us to go watch films from the 30s. Sure. Um, which can often be quite difficult because you, to find the motivation to watch those films does require a lot more attention sure. and patience. Um, so was that around the Gone with the Wind era? Ah, it's 1930. No, no, what a... Excuse oh. me, what I mean is when we covered that film on the podcast. Is that when you watched this one? I think so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And I ended up being, like, really surprised by the mood, like, things like the movement, the stylism, stuff that I didn't think was doable in 1930. Right. I, I mean, think- Citizen Kane is 40s. That kind of revolutionized 
the way yes. we pre- perceive storytelling and camera movement and all of those things. And and for me, yeah, this this film really blew blew me away. And 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 the bold storytelling of of doing a a World War One story from the German perspective, from mm. the losing side perspective. And you know, we were quite positive on our World War One films, like we did Gallipoli, and we yep. loved what Peter Weir did with that. We're talking about how young men and were robbed of their youth in in that sense, but yep. that was from the obviously the, the way more closer Australian to home Australian Larrikin point yeah. of view. And I still attest that's probably up there as one of the best war films of all time also but mm. to to con like conjure up what they did in 1930 and then to have this 2022 remake being met with the same praise i know friend of the show blake loves this film so the 2022 version adores and, this film you know people were already putting it in the company of of our of our dunkirks and our 1917s wow. yeah. um i don't care for 1917 i like dunkirk so here we here we go <laughs> let's hope we can find another good war film that touches on uh, sort of the innocence lost in a war it's a it's quite an old traditional story i mean a 1930 yeah. story so it'll be interesting based on to a see. book written by the soldier himself i believe mm. yeah well wow. look at it it's crazy zeke 200 episodes congratulations it's still no breakfast <laughs> still no <laughs> still no break you're gonna put the yeah the fist up the in the fist. air well done fist. um happy birthday for later in the week Big two five. We'll both be twenty five by the time you hear the or by the next episode, of course. Two oh one. Um yep. and Scorsese will be eighty by then, so happy birthday to Mr. Martin Scorsese as well, one of the greatest living filmmakers of all time. Mm-hmm. Um watch Hugo if you can in the next week. I will try. That's my recommendation. Watch Hugo. I I think it's a good yeah, one. Buddy. But um yeah, no, this is absolutely mind blowing. We're gonna go right into two oh one, we're not gonna skip a beat. Not gonna stop to celebrate Z, we're just gonna Keep chugging along. Keep going. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with All Quiet on the Western Front.